The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I love an underdog story. Love a tale of someone succeeding despite the deck being stacked heavily against them. Based on general public perceptions about her race and gender during the time she was alive, based on the family she was born into, where she was born, there's no way Josephine Baker should have rose to fame and fortune. But she did. She didn't care about the rules or the odds. She just went for it. She lived life on her own terms about as much as one can. She faced struggles with a smile and victories with the same smile. She lived more life in one year than so many people seem to live in their entire lives. She fought and loved and lost and won, lost again, won again. The one thing she never did was give up. She was beautiful. She was funny. She was dramatic. She could be a real asshole. She could also be the sweetest person in the whole world. She had a temper, a big heart, a bigger brain, a dancer's body, a, a gypsy soul, and I sure would have loved to meet her. She was the modern world's first black female superstar. Ernest Hemingway described her as the most sensational woman anybody ever saw. And by the end of this suck, you may agree with him without ever seeing her yourself. Her life makes one hell of a tale. So let's tell it today on Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, a master sucker, and you are listening to Time Suck. Welcome to the Cult of Curious. Get ready for a bit of inspiration this week. Need a little break from the darkness. And boy, did I get a break with this tale. No less interesting. Just knowing, you know, getting brutally murdered. So hail Nimrod, Lucifina, and you, Meat Sack. Thanks to all the amazing fans who came out to the Indianapolis shows, sharing your stories. Got a lot of stories this past week about how this show, for you know, for whatever reason, over the last three years, has, has helped people deal with depression, suicidal ideations, grief, anxiety, getting over a breakup, getting over a divorce, dealing with surgeries, cancer, other medical treatments, PTSD, and more, or just you know, just a, a boring, tedious job. 
And I just want you to know that, that hearing all that matters. It matters uh, to me a lot. It motivates me to, to keep this shit coming week after week to really try and, and put my best into it because I know it, it matters uh, to a lot of you. And that's, um, I feel very fortunate that it does. So to, to be able to do something that's not only entertaining, but, but makes a, a difference in other ways in people's lives. Not all just peanut butter, butter and, and limb shamecocks here. <laughs> this community is full of a little bit of magic. So thank you, Magical Meat Sack motherfuckers, for sharing that magic back with me. I feel the love. Try to give it back, even during the real dark, horrific sucks. Uh, love doing this. Thanks for continuing to spread the suck, man. And for the feedback, running into more and more of you in public. I've been blown away. Uh, how many of you have been telling me you love the new Scared to Death horror podcast? Feel so good about that. Uh, you know, I had a goal in mind of how many, you know, listens I wanted, uh, or, you know, or downloads or whatever plays that I wanted to have in the first 60 days. And uh, Lindsay and I beat that in the first 10 days. Thanks to you guys. I know now that the show will grow and evolve just like uh, Time Suck has. And I can tell you guys are spreading, spreading that one as well because we get comments from people who, you know, don't even listen to Time Suck, the horror things, more they're jamming. We have some people who like that uh, more than Time Suck, which, uh, you know, makes me very happy to provide something different for different people. And thanks to Pat McAfee and the, uh, uh, McAfee, excuse me, Pat McAfee and the guys at Heartland Radio 2.0, uh, that podcast for having me back on. Man, Pat, what, what a interesting dude. The first time I actually met him was this one. My episode of Heartland Radio is uh, out right now, actually. And uh, last time I was on the show, well, last time I, show, I, I, I should say, I met him, but like super briefly, just like in passing. Hey, thanks for coming in the building, you know, and he was, he's, he's so busy all the time and I respect the grind. And this time he actually popped in, sat on the show. Very funny guy. It was just cool to see him work. Really smart guy. Smart, funny. Todd, Todd McComas, you know, all those guys. Fucking awesome. Just good, solid Midwest dudes. So thank you again. And give it, yeah, give that show a listen if you just if you just want pure fun. I laughed so much. And it's Heartland Radio 2.0. Uh, not touring this week, but I'll be back in Tampa again at Side Splitters next weekend. Last Florida shows for the tour. Last shows before I, I tape a new stand-up special in Detroit. Can't wait. Detroit's been sold out for a little while, but there are still our tickets to uh, next night's show in Minneapolis. One show I'll be doing there this year on October 19th, 10,000 Laughs Comedy Festival. Then it's on to Portland at Helium Comedy Club in Oregon, Columbus, Ohio at Funny Bone, Denver, Colorado at Comedy Works Downtown, Grand Rapids. Going to be there back at Dr. Grin's, uh, Tacoma at the Tacoma Comedy Club, Spokane at Spokane Comedy Club to finish out 2019 and uh, putting the finishing details on the tour for 2020 now. You can go to dancummins.tv for tour info. And last mention for the September charity, Youth on Record. Go to youthonrecord.org to find out more about this great Denver-based charity that we gave 3000 to uh, on behalf of the Space Lizards, the Patreon subscribers. It's a charity that does so much for at-risk youth, Colorado. Finally, a, a big new Time Suck app update is out. So that's awesome. So excited about that. A lot of cool features, like uh, the ability to filter episodes in your catalog, Time Suck catalog, based on you know what you've listened to what you've downloaded, what you favorited. You can favorite things now and you can search now through the episode catalog. You can do like, you know, word searches and, you know, find out if we've done an episode already that you might want to listen to and and all kinds of extra cool, so extra uh, character bios, avatars, lots of stuff. It's in the Apple and Google Play app stores. It's free. So get the free, very improved Time Suck app. Thank you, Elixir. And now let's find out a whole bunch about a true star, superstar. One of, the, one of the earliest international superstars, uh, a star who used their talents for good, so much good, a woman who brought so much joy to so many and just lived a life that provided a great tale for us to hear today. Let's just talk about Josephine Baker. Today's suck is, is uh, going to do it in pretty much a straightforward way here. Not a lot of setup necessary. 
Uh, we'll get into the context you know, needed as we go through the timeline. It's a big timeline today. It's going to take up pretty much the entire suck. So let's get ready to march. We head into uh, 1906 to kick off today's time suck timeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah! Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Josephine Baker was born on June 3rd, 1906, and originally her name was Freda Josephine McDonald. So probably related to Michael McDonald, I'm going to assume. I'm going to assume Triple M, you know, probably. I mean, I mean, how many how many McDonald's are there, really? There's Ronald McDonald and there's Michael McDonald. So one of those people uh, she has to be related to. Uh, I, like this, I like this choice to go with Josephine. Nothing against the, you know, it's F-R-E-D-A-S. So Freda, nothing against the Fredas of the world. Josephine, more feminine, more sophisticated sounding name. And I think it is Freda because there's no I in it, you know, like Frida. Anyway, Josephine's mother was Carrie McDonald and her uh, father, at least the man she was told of her father uh, was her father was Eddie Carson. Numerous biographers have speculated that her mother may have had an affair with a German man. She was working for a German family. There's a lot of German immigrant families in St. Louis at the time uh, when she became pregnant with Josephine. And Josephine was a lot lighter skinned than her siblings and her supposed father, Eddie. And while they presented themselves as a married couple, Carrie and Eddie weren't legally married, and their relationship may have been a little looser than a married type relationship when Josephine was conceived. Uh, but to be clear, this is all pure speculation, and no one would speculate more about Josephine's real father than Josephine herself. Uh, she'd later throw out all kinds of different parentage possibilities, saying her father was black in some stories, uh, Jewish in others, European in others, American Indian in still other stories. And uh, when Josephine was born, Carrie and Eddie had a small song and dance act in St. Louis. Born into some showbiz. Eddie was a percussionist, a vaudeville guy, and a native of St. Louis. And Carrie had recently come to town from South Carolina, thousand miles to the southeast. Carrie comes to St. Louis just uh, two years before when she was 19. She chose St. Louis, like thousands and thousands of others, to find work at the famous World's Fair of 1904, also known as the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. Back when St. Louis was popping. It was comparatively a much bigger and more important U.S. city than it is today. And that's not a knock on St. Louis. It's just, uh, you know, just uh, the truth. 1904, St. Louis was the fourth biggest city in the U.S. behind New York City, Philadelphia, and Chicago. It's not even in the top 50 now, which uh, surprised me. Uh, I thought it would be much higher. Feels like It feels like it's much bigger than I guess it is. It's, it's down at number 68, one behind Pittsburgh and one ahead of Cincinnati as far as the most populous U.S. cities. Uh, this World Fair was enormous. Big event, by the way. In our modern, you can find everything on the internet world. We have no really comparison. These, these type of fairs wouldn't happen the same way again today. World fairs were, they're kind of like big trade shows on steroids, like a lot of steroids. They didn't last a weekend. They would last for months and months. Uh, we talked about another one in the, uh, the, uh, in the HH Homesuck, the Chicago's World Fair. The St. Louis World Fair lasts from April 30th all the way to December 1st, 1904. More than 60 countries and 43 of 45 American states at the time maintained exhibition spaces. It was attended by almost 20 million people, right around 19.7 million people. People coming from all over the world to St. Louis, coming to see the latest, greatest technological innovations from around the globe. The, the St. Louis Fair was initially conceived as a centennial celebration to be held in 1903, the 100th anniversary of the actual Louisiana Purchase. But then the opening was delayed until April 30th, 1904, to allow for full-scale participation by more states, foreign countries, uh, who didn't have their shit together in time? Uh, Poland. Yeah, of course, of course it was Poland. Uh, the entire fair was delayed because the Polish people didn't have their exhibition space all set up, which was super frustrating because, you know, I mean, 
they were they were putting on what was arguably the least exciting exhibition. While other countries were showing off futuristic kind of products, Poland, uh, you know, had what was supposed to be uh, an exhibition called the Warsaw Wonder. It was the first 100% Polish person who could count to 100 without anyone helping. But then the last second, after passing two previous inspections, uh, fair officials determined that the Warsaw Wonder was actually a chimpanzee that had been shaved down and trained to uh, pretend to be Polish. If that sounds crazy, you know, fuck, do a Google image search for Polish people and then keep that, keep that window open and then open up another window and do a search for uh, clean-shaven chimpanzees. It's fucking it's uncanny how similar the pictures are. Uh, and of course, that's not true about Polish people. I just uh, like to occasionally disparage my wife's heritage uh, because I am, quote, a sick puppy. And I also like to imagine new listeners uh, hearing episodes and be like, what the fuck? How is he not allowed to say that about? That's ridiculous. Let's talk about real ex- exhibitions here. Uh, numerous breakthrough inventions were debuted at the fair, like the x-ray machine, the baby incubator, the electric typewriter, the, the telautograph, which was an early version of the fax machine. The uh, telephone answering machine was debuted. Automatic gatekeeper at each fair entrance was the first gatekeeper to admit one person after receiving the proper coin and then automatically lock again until the next coin was inserted. That debuted. Electricity was the star of the show at, the, at this World Fair. All the major buildings on the fairgrounds were lit inside and out by electric lights. The fair's thoroughfares were also illuminated by electric lights. Big deal in 1904. Within the palaces of machinery, transportation, and electricity, uh, many electric-powered machines and appliances were on display. Uh, inventor Thomas Edison himself was brought in to oversee the assembly of the electrical exhibits. I'm sure rival and former suck subject Nikola Tesla was super annoyed. Tesla was a big part of the 1893 Chicago's World Fair. That, that was the first all-electric World Fair. Uh, the electrical plug and outlet, like the wall outlet, made their debut at this fair. Can you imagine life without power outlets now? It makes me anxious to even think about that. Like outlets are, are literally the first thing I look for when I walk into a hotel room. When a room doesn't have outlets like in the desk and on the base of the nightstand and, you know, USB charging docks, you know, built into the nightstand clock, I'm immediately annoyed. Just, what is this? What is this, a room or, or flipping time machine? <laughs> Am I staying in a, a room called it 1986 or the year 1986? <laughs> oh, my heck. Am I right? No one? Ah, oh, gosh dang. Okay. No, but uh, on and on. Ice cream cone, iced tea, the hot dog were debuted at this World Fair. Uh, the squeegee, bowling shoes, the electric scooter, purple grapes, hammocks, tricycles, pubic hair combs, cheese and crackers, fly swatters, deli sliced turkey meat, toilet plungers, Velcro shoes, extra sharp cheddar, super plus absorbity tampons, uh, water beds, ant farms, peanut butter, butt plugs, showbiz, uh, all made their debuts in my mind. I lied about everything from squeegee on. Many of the real items I listed before my nonsense are believed to have existed, you know, maybe a few months, year or two before the fair, but uh, but they were debuted. And they had their big debut at the St. Louis Fair in the summer of 1904. So Josephine Baker is born in the aftermath of a tremendous display of experimentation and innovation. Born in the aftermath of curiosity and wonder, for at least one year, St. Louis was arguably the most exciting and lively and intellectually invigorated city in America. It's an exciting time. And Josephine was also born into poverty, extreme poverty. Oh, man. She had a hell of a childhood. Uh, downtown St. Louis, where Carrie and Eddie lived and worked in the wake of the World Fair, was full of grimy, rundown housing. Much of it just, you know, quickly built to provide you know, very cheap housing for all the labor required to service this World's Fair. Outside of the World's Fair, St. Louis was also a, a big slaughterhouse town at the time. Thousands and thousands of cows brought into the city to fulfill their hamburger patty and leather boot destinies. The smell of death was quite literally in the air. Day and night, the stench of the slaughterhouses, tanneries, and meatpacking factories wafted over the narrow, cobbled, gaslit streets of the city. Neighborhoods were also coated in soot, constantly being dispersed from railroad activity. 
St. Louis was a huge railroad town. If you're an old-timey evil guy with a handlebar mustache who enjoyed tying damsels to some train tracks, St. Louis was your town. And, and this is important. When St. Uh, Josephine was born, when Josephine was born, sorry, she wasn't St. Josephine. Uh, some may feel that she's St. Josephine. Uh, the St. Louis area was one of the most important and interesting areas in America in regards to black American culture. St. Louis has a super interesting history, especially when it comes to African-Americans. Let's, uh, let's dig into that a tiny bit before we bounce back into Josephine's life. The city was founded in 1764 as a trading post on a long bend of the Mississippi River. And like much of the southeastern U.S. at the time, it belonged to France. And as the town grew, French culture would influence its character. It was named uh, after King Louis IX of France. Actually, technically, when it was founded, St. Louis belonged to the Spanish, but because word traveled so slow back in the 18th century, local French explorers didn't yet know that. They didn't know that their king had given away their territory when they're like, this is for France. You know, it's like, nah, it's fucking Spain technically, but, you know, you'll figure that out in a year or two. Uh, I find the, uh, the French founding interesting considering how France would later become such an important part of Josephine's life. It would become her true home her spiritual home, and yeah, just, you know, where she would actually live for most of her life and the place that would make her a superstar. In the early 19th century, one of the many things a French gentleman was judged by was the refinement of his servants. So it was a matter of pride for many French slave owners to see that their slaves were very well educated, which is very different than slave owners in most of the English territories who strongly discouraged any type of self-improvement from their slaves, actively tried to keep them uneducated, right? They had to, they had to hide learning, because they uh, wanted them, you know, easier to, to be able to control, I guess. Most English slaves were illiterate, often received no formal education whatsoever. Many French slaves could read and write. And if a slave had ability as some type of like craftsman or as an artist, a painter or a sculptor, their skills would actually be encouraged. Their talents would be nurtured, which is so fucking weird to me considering that they were still enslaved, right? Like what a weird situation to put somebody in. Just, oh, Maurice, this potter is beautiful. I simply love it when you work with the oils. You have paid great attention in your lessons. I was thinking, it is time you try some impressionism. I want you to work with some watercolors. Merci, Master Pierre. I would rather stay focused on the oils. You will work with the watercolors, or you will get the whip. It's fucking crazy. Like, how weird is that? To educate someone, encourage their natural talents, but not free them. And in a way, it seems almost more cruel to me. Because I, I would imagine that the smarter you get, the more aware you would be of, of the evil nature of your own slavery. Uh, some slaves... Uh, achieved an even broader education by attending their masters on trips to Europe. They had to be educated in Europe. Because of all this education, St. Louis became an early leading pre-Civil War center of emerging black intellectual and artistic culture. By 1803, when France sold its land in America to the United States, all 828,000 square miles of it, it was, uh, you know, the Louisiana Purchase, there were some 5,000 African-Americans in the St. Louis area comprising both slaves and some free men and women whose owners had emancipated them. So I guess, you know, that's, that's nice. That would happen sometimes. This was more than the white population of only a few thousand. Trading posts grew into a town and a city. Immigrants from other European countries as well as France began to flood into it. Many came from Germany. Others from Spain, Greece, Italy, Syria, the Ukraine. One reason why they chose St. Louis was because the ground around it was fertile and it was located in a great place for 19th century transportation methods. Growing number of railroads were cutting through St. Louis. The mighty Mississippi connected to other cities as far as part of, as, uh, Pennsylvania in the north, New Orleans in the south. Many of these newly arrived European immigrants had no prejudice against blacks, or at least less prejudice, and many even held anti-slavery opinions prior to the Civil War. So, you know, America, uh, prior to the Civil War, not a good place in general for black Americans, but St. Louis, you know, was one of the better places for black Americans. 
They also had a strong musical tradition uh, as far as in the city, and, a, and a, many local African Americans began to study music in a, in a formal European tradition. The standard of black musicianship in St. Louis became as high as anywhere else in America. And then when the Civil War ended in April of 1865 and Southern slaves were freed, a flood of them immigrated north, and one of the most common immigration destinations was St. Louis. They heard it was this magical land, you know, where there was opportunities for everyone. Black Americans already living in St. Louis before the Civil War were comparatively doing pretty well compared to other urban, you know, black populations around the states. Thanks to all that French education, you know, they were educated craftsmen. They were the best artists, musicians, barbers, caterers, etc. Many of them settled on the south, uh, the city's south side, living in substantial houses. Even uh, though segregation was the rule in many areas of life in St. Louis, their children, at least in the initial wake of the Civil War, attended both public and parochial schools with the children of white people. The freed slaves migrating north found less skilled work in St. Louis, uh, you know, uh, that area they were hoping for. They worked as field hands, servants, dockers, you know, porters, other types of factory work. Many of the men worked building the rapidly growing railroads. By 1900, St. Louis had become the, the biggest railroad junction in all of America. When its famous Union Station was completed in 1894, 42 different railroads met there. And I jumped ahead of myself a little bit. When they, when they initially got there, they did find work, which is why, you know, so many people kept coming. Uh, resembling a turreted medieval castle of stone, this— uh, this Union Station covered three acres in the heart of downtown St. Louis. Served more passengers than any other railroad station in the entire country. It's no longer a train station, in case you're curious. It ceased operation in 1978 as an active train terminal. Now it's a fancy hotel. An aquarium is supposed to open in the next few months. So, you know, check that out if you like aquariums there. Uh, anyway, the huge influx of blacks into St. Louis after the Civil War uh, from the South meant that by 1904, the time of the World's Fair, it, it, was, it was not quite the mecca of upper, uh, you know, crust of African-American life that it once had been because too many people had moved in, way too many. Many of them former slaves who weren't educated, weren't skilled craftsmen, and there just weren't enough jobs to go around. By 1984, it, it was getting just hard for unskilled men to find work in St. Louis. It had been good for a few decades, and now poverty is growing year after year, and so is racial tension. White unskilled laborers starting to really resent the influx of their black counterparts competing for the same jobs, especially since they were willing to work for less wages. Uh, wages paid by white factory owners, I might add. It seems as if the anger of those white factory uh, workers was misplaced, right? Don't, don't be mad at the dude willing to work for less than a fair wage. Be mad at the employer willing to pay them less than a fair wage. Uh, now let's get back to Josephine's family. When Carrie McDonald arrives from South Carolina, she's accompanied by her mother and her elder sister, Elvera. Elvera had lost her husband in the Spanish-American War of 1898, now received a small pension from the U.S. Army. She used that pension to rent a small apartment in the poorest part of St. Louis on Lucas Street. Little, little tiny apartments crammed in houses, you know, uh, crammed between smoke-belching factories that made shoes and saddles, carpets and coffins, drugs and buggies, and one of St. Louis's uh, most famous exports at the time, German beer. St. Louis is still a big beer town. Anheuser-Busch still has a giant brewery complex in St. Louis one that opened way back in 1852. Attractive 19-year-old Carrie soon finds work as a waitress, and in her free time, she begins to explore the city's exciting nightlife. St. Louis did have one of the best, if not the best, African-American nightlife scenes in the country at that time. Neighborhoods would come alive at night with music and dancing. The popular music of the day was ragtime. And St. Louis, with its strong musical tradition, had some of the very best ragtime players in the entire world. Originally developed informally by random Midwestern pianists, pianists, excuse me, and later formalized by, you know, uh, composer pianists like Tom Turbin and Scott Joplin, and eventually arranged for orchestras, uh, ragtime became widely, widely popular all over America, beginning in the 1890s. 
And and the subject of ragtime does bring me to today's first sponsor. Uh, today's time show is brought to you by Ragtime Gets the Whip, a recently rediscovered album of ragtime classics reinterpreted by none other than musical master Albert Fish. Uh, let's hear a sneak peek of how uh, Albert added some some really, really nice heartfelt lyrics to Scott Joplin's 1902 classic, The Entertainer. When you like it a little naughty, when you crave some sexy party, when you need your sweet bottom spanked, when you need your peewees really cranked, when you want your monkey smashed, when you need to get your nips lashed, that's when you come on over, bring that hot apple cider, bring your peanut butter, showbiz, boom, boom. Ha <laughs> ha, yeah! How's that for music? How's that for showbiz? That, of course, is not a sponsor. That was just an excuse to torture you a bit with Mr. Fish, who for some reason is very fond of singing uh, inside the suck first only. I don't believe he was known to ever sing in real life. Uh, any, anyway, <laughs> that makes me way too happy to be able to do stuff like that. Back to uh, real history. Uh, St. Louis was alive with music and dancing. Josephine's mother, Carrie, was an exceptional dancer. <laughs> Not only was Carrie a good dancer, I'm an idiot. Uh, she also uh, wanted to be a performer. St. Louis had a lively nightclub and theater scene, and she did a bit of acting in local theaters at the Gaiety Theater. She was cast as a native in a production called A Trip to Africa, where she met fellow cast member Josephine's dad, Eddie Carson, and fell in love. Eddie was a fast-talking, charismatic, sharply-dressed dude known locally as Spinache a name which implied he had some Spanish blood. Maybe he did. You know, St. Louis existed under Spanish influence for decades at the end of the 18th century. Eddie made a living as a drummer, played in street parades, picnics, funerals, saloons, brothels, vaudeville houses. Uh, the vaudeville houses in St. Louis's notorious Chestnut Valley, which was a red light district near Union Station. Chestnut Valley was filled with honky-tonks, gambling halls, barrel houses, serving nickel shots of liquor. Barrel houses were ever, everywhere at the time. This type of business is thought to have originated in San Francisco during the gold rush of 1849. Starting out as simple shacks with bars that were often just a plank of wood across two barrels. <laughs> that is pretty simple. Uh, they soon developed a pretty standard layout. It'd be a saloon with dancing downstairs and then rooms for prostitutes upstairs. In the saloon, hostesses would dance with customers in order to get them, you know, in, in the mood to visit the other girls upstairs. And Eddie liked to hang out in these bars and gambling halls and play pool and flirt with the ladies and talk about music. And Carrie fell in love with this fun party dude. And pretty soon they, they put together a little song and dance act of their own with routines devised by Eddie, and they took work wherever they could find it, hole-in-the-wall little vaudeville houses, bars, restaurants, you know, these barrel houses, you know, wherever. And about a year after they met, along came Josephine. Carrie couldn't dance towards the end of her pregnancy, so Eddie took up work with the little trio for a while. And when Josephine was still a newborn, sometimes Carrie would bring her to watch Dad play. She was around entertainment, not since she was a baby, but since before she was a baby, since she was in the womb, she was on the stage. A few months after Josephine's birth, Carrie and Eddie briefly resume their song and dance act, but then Carrie gets pregnant again. In October of 1907, when Josephine is just 16 months old, Carrie and Eddie have a son, Richard, who they called Little Dick, a nickname that, while cute when he was a toddler, would haunt him tremendously in later years. I have no idea if they called him Little Dick. Probably not, uh, since I made that part up. Uh, what I do know is that shortly after Richard was born, Eddie and Carrie split up. They were done. Eddie was apparently ready for, not ready, excuse me, for the trappings of fatherhood. And he bounced Carrie was devastated. She loved him madly. And when he left, so did her chance as a, as a, in a career as an entertainer. Right now, she was a single mom without an act. A single mom with two mouths to feed. Fucking Eddie! It ruined everything. For the rest of her childhood, Josephine would feel that her mother took out her anger over her father's abandonment on her. She looked like her dad more than the other, you know, more than her sibling, more than her brother. 
you know, the father that Carrie thought of, uh, you know, the, as her ticket out of the slums into the glamorous world of entertainment had abandoned her. Carrie went back to live with her sister and mother after Eddie left, became grim, bitter, a resentful person, took whatever menial labor job, labor job came her way to support her two young children, cleaning houses, doing laundry, whatever work she could get in overcrowded St. Louis. Later, Josephine would recall that her mother in moments of anger and frustration would tell her that she hated her, wanted her dead. These were some of her earliest memories, memories of poverty, of missing her father, of having an angry, resentful mother who seemed to hate her. So overall, super fun early childhood. Uh, Carrie also didn't waste any time finding a new guy. Just months later, she met Arthur Martin, big, tall, short-tempered, but not unkind laborer. He was no Eddie. There was no nightlife with Arthur, no hope for riches, but at least he was there and he wasn't going anywhere. In her new life as Mrs. Martin, Carrie moved out from Lucas Street with her two children to set up a home with Arthur, and then they moved again and again and again. Uh, Arthur wouldn't abandon Carrie, but he would never do much to provide for her either. Arthur was one of the many, many unskilled laborers living in St. Louis, and the family moved from one dump to another, sometimes being evicted for not paying rent, sometimes skipping out just before they got evicted. They were borderline homeless. Carrie also got pregnant right away, and on July 18th, 1910, she gave birth to Josephine's half-sister, Willie Mae Martin. Less than a year later, she had another girl, Margaret, and poor little Willie Mae, when she was just a baby, she got clawed in the eye by the family dog, leaving her blind in that eye for the rest of her life. I'm guessing this unnamed dog got a little bit of a whooping for clawing the baby's eye. Just a guess. Probably got more punishment than a quick yell of, bad dog! Stop clawing, baby! Stop clawing baby's eye out! We don't claw baby's eyes out, dog! So now Arthur and Carrie have four kids, at least one dog. They live in poverty and squalor. They were so ridiculously poor that Josephine would later remember that when it would snow, her stepdad would walk to whatever factory he'd found part-time work at in sneakers wrapped in newspapers. He couldn't afford a single pair of boots. Holy shit. You know, if you're feeling bad about your financial situation, think about the last time you walked to a factory through the snow with sneakers wrapped in newspapers. And if you can't remember ever doing that, maybe things aren't as awful as they could be. Maybe your financial situation could get considerably worse. At some point early in Josephine's childhood, the family stopped moving around from place to place, got a house on uh, Gratiot Street behind Union Station, and they shared it with another family. There was no gas or electricity. They shared the home, again, with another family, but at least it was a home. They got two bedrooms to call their own, shared the rest of the space. In the winter, when it got cold, and St. Louis can for sure get cold, coldest temperature on record is 22 uh, degrees negative Fahrenheit. They would heat their room with a fire, or I guess their rooms, plural, uh, with a fire in a metal barrel. Can you imagine that? Like opening up a window in your bedroom to let the smoke out because you're heating your fucking bedroom with a fire in a metal barrel, an open flame in your bedroom. This makes no sense to me. It's crazy to me, but that's that's what it said in the most reliable biography I could find. Uh, for added insulation and cover up cracks in the rooms, Arthur would paper the walls with newspaper. The toilet was in the backyard covered by a shed. Highly doubt the shed was heated. How fun would that be to walk out in below freezing temperatures to sit down and take a shit in some kind of freezing poop shed? I bet that poop shed smelled amazing. Family uh, bathed in a laundry tub and Josephine is the eldest child. Uh, she got the water last for some reason after it had already been used by her mother, her stepfather, her brother, and her half-sisters. Ugh. Feel so lucky right now to have never been so poor I had to take a bath in someone else's bath water. Think about that. Think about washing your face. Then you feel something on your lip. Is it some belly button lint from one of your siblings? Or is it a pube from your mom or your stepdad? How fun is that? The house was cold and full of bugs, rats and smells, but it was a step up because at least, uh, you know, at the Gratiot Street house, the children had a bed to themselves. In the other places they lived, the whole family had to sleep in one bed, all of them. The children would sleep at the foot of the bed. 
carrying Arthur at the head of the bed with her feet in the children's faces. Good God. And apparently, according to Josephine, Arthur's feet smelled so bad she would sleep on the floor and use newspapers for a blanket rather than risk throwing up in the bed. Fuck me. I lived in a trailer. I tasted government cheese growing up, but I never used newspapers for a blanket. I never had to sleep with my face and my stepdad's feet. Blah! My dogs, Penny and Ginger, live in so much more comfort than Josephine and her entire family lived in. I think when I get home, I'm going to beat the shit out of those dogs just to make life seem more fair, right? They have it too good. Let's be honest. Talk about humble beginnings, man. I wonder how often she cried herself to sleep. I'm guessing uh, maybe every night. And check this out. There were, things were even more miserable than I just described. Let's talk about rats. Again, even though the, the Gratiot house was a step up from previous accommodations, it was also full of rats. The home's wooden floor uh, had a bunch of holes in it. And through these holes in the floor, rats were constantly crawling up into the family's bedrooms. Sometimes they'd take an empty chili or tomato can and they'd nail it over one of the holes, but then the rats would bite and claw their way around the tin, invade the bedroom, scamper across the floor, head for the kitchen where they'd look around, you know, poking closets, gathering paper, gathering some rags for their little rat nests. There were so many rats that Josephine's brother Richard would often sit up in his bed at night and try to pick off the rats with a fucking slingshot. Oh my heck! Gosh darn! Why is that so flippin' sad? I want to make my kids listen to this uh, episode. Never let them complain about anything ever again. Dad, I don't want to go to Texas Roadhouse. I want to go to Tomato Street. How about we, we don't go somewhere, uh, you know, where you have to sit in your fucking room and shoot a rat with a slingshot, okay? How about you be happy that we're not doing that? Can you imagine just sitting up in your bed at night, picking off rats? Ugh, no exterminator to call. You couldn't afford to, you know, call one if there was one. These people were next level poor. And then not long after moving into the Gratiot house, the family's financial situation gets worse. Fun. Arthur, who'd gotten a job at a local foundry around the time they moved into the Gratiot house, got, he gets fired for punching his boss. Uh, Richard would later describe the situation saying, one time his boss underpaid him five cents. When he counted his money and saw that he'd been shortchanged, he ran back to the office <laughs> and punched his boss. <laughs> I love how he doesn't mention a discussion. It's like one nickel short. And he's like, oh, fucking punch him in the mouth. Uh, the police took him to jail. After his release, he was out of a job for a long time. Everybody said he was crazy for beating up his boss. Then Richard said, you know, but five cents could buy you a lot to eat in those days. I mean, that, that's another sign that you're super poor. When you punch your boss in their fucking face for shorting you a nickel. After losing his job, Arthur goes crazy for a while. Uh, between the rats and the steel barrel fires in the bedroom and the freezing poop shed and the wearing the shoes wrapped in the newspaper to get to the factory, you know, I get help somebody could snap. Shortly after he gets fired, he gets so mad at Carrie for overcooking some hot dogs that he grabs a bunch of them, tries to cram them down her throat in front of the entire family. Not long after that, his rage turns into depression and despair. And he falls into a, a pit of self-pity that he could never, ever fully crawl back out of. He was a broken man. Arthur begins taking to sitting in a chair in the living room and just kind of quietly staring off into the middle distance most days. Carrie's able to pick up enough work to keep the family from getting kicked out of the Gratiot Street house. And then the family, you know, kind of keeps barely moving along. Josephine tries to get out of her parents' house as much as she can, spending time at her grandma and her aunt's home. Uh, 1911, when Josephine's only six, she's already working to help out the family's finances on days when, you know, Arthur isn't stewing in a crock pot of sadness. Some days before dawn, Arthur would take her and sometimes her siblings on a two-mile walk to the Salard Market, the city's great fruit and vegetable market to scavenge for food. This market is still around. I haven't been to it, but it looks awesome. It's been going to uh, since 1779, and it's still there. Still an active, like, farmer's market. The market in Josephine's time was, uh, you know, in these huge open-air sheds covering half a city block where everyday farmers with horse-drawn wagons could bring their crops for sale. The sheds were crammed with stalls. These would overflow with fresh vegetables, cabbages, potatoes, turnips, broccoli, squash, and carrots. 
Josephine would scavenge for bruised and damaged fruit and vegetables that the vendors couldn't sell. You know, fruit and vegetables they'd give her out of pity. She and her brother Richard also learned to earn pennies by picking up lumps of coal from railway freight yards and selling them. It was common for the poorest families of the area to send their children to do this, the theory being that the police would not prosecute children for these minor offenses. When she got a little older, Josephine improved on this by stealing coal from the wagons themselves. Daring and agile, she'd climb up on top of one of these wagons, you know, and then throw down lumps of coal to Richard, Margaret, and Willie Mae, who'd wait below. Again, it's just fucking, it's preposterously sad. It's preposterously poor. Also in 1911, Josephine starts going to school at the nearby Lincoln School, enrolling in the first grade. The short walk from the Gratiot Street house to the squat brick building with overcrowded classrooms and a small playground that catered to poor and middle-income black students. And Josephine was amongst the poorest of the poor. She wore the same clothes to school every day for an entire year. One outfit, a blue little, you know, dress trimmed in white. Every day she wore that for, for the whole year. She went barefoot until somebody finally gave the family a pair of cast-off high-heeled shoes. Weren't even her size. Arthur cut off the heels, gave them to Josephine to wear. The uneven soles, you know, think about this, is a high-heeled shoe with the heel cut off. She's, you know, has a strap to her feet, so at least she's not bare feet. Well, they make her toes stick up because of the angle. So this, you know, makes her kind of walk funny. And so all the kids uh, make fun of her. She's a huge target of mockery. And this is when Josephine learns to employ a defense mechanism that she would later use to make the public love her. She became really funny. She started mocking the kids who mocked her right back, you know, and she became basically a goofball, class clown, exaggerating her funny walk, you know, like she's doing it on purpose, you know, embracing her shortcomings. She learned to cross her eyes, make silly faces that would crack up her classmates. Because then, then at least she felt like she was controlling the laughter. They were laughing because she wanted them to, not just because, out of, you know, mockery. She didn't love school, didn't care for her teachers, didn't care for most of the other students. Uh, but she did love for some of what she learned in her history lessons. She loved tales of the kings and queens of Europe. And she started to dream big dreams, as children often do, about living like royalty someday herself. Dreams that unlike, I'm guessing, you know, any of her classmates would actually ever live. But, you know, Josephine actually would live these dreams one day. Uh, she also made a friend, a girl about the same age by the name of Joyce McDuffie, who lived in the neighborhood. And Joyce would later have some funny things to say about young Josephine, who she called Tumpy, which was a childhood nickname. She said, Tumpy was always needling people. She'd poke the kids and stick her tongue out at them. And Tumpy was dirty. I used to try to get her to clean herself up, but it didn't do no good. She was too fidgety. She'd wash half her face and forget to wash the other half. Man, she also had some fire, young Tumpy, some spirit, some mischief. Hail Lucifina. Uh, 1912, when Josephine was just seven, a small black vaudeville house, the Booker T. Washington Theater opened in Chestnut Valley on the corner of 23, 23rd Street and Market Street. The room's owner was Charlie Turpin, brother of the popular ragtime musician Tom Turpin that we mentioned. Do you want to hear Albert Fish uh, sing some more ragtime? I mean, we can. I mean, if you want, we can get this back going again. No, no. Okay, okay. Enough earlier. That's fine. Every week, Charlie ran a different show with a different theme at the theater, African, cowboy, Egyptian, and so on. And he managed to attract some of the best black talent of the area at the time. Blues singers Ma Rainey and Ida Cox, the young Bessie Smith, the comedy team of Butterbeans and Susie all played there. You can find old recordings of Butterbeans and Susie on YouTube. Uh, I find it fascinating how much live comedy has changed over the years. Th this is what the early 20th century equivalent of stand-up comedy would be. Hot dog, hot dog. Here come the hot dog man. They come in. What is it, lady? But I see you got a hot dog stand. You know something, Sue? I'm known now as the hot dog man. Yes, the hot hey, dog. Listen, 
Well, I want a dog without bread, you see. Wow, wow, what's the matter? Because uh -huh. I carries my bread with me. Mm-hmm, I, I bet you do. you peculiar, and that's the natural fact. Mm-hmm. Yes, and if I like your dog, oh. why, I'll come back. I know. Does anyone get the feeling they're not talking about actual hot dogs? Uh, or actual buns? I, I, <laughs> call me crazy, but I'm pretty sure they're talking about peens and puss. The old hot dog bun, peen puss, switcheroo. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, some, some early naughty comedy. Uh, Josephine's friend, Joyce's older brother, uh, or Josephine's friend, Joyce's older brother, Robert, who was only 12 himself, started to, uh, you know, go see these shows, like the shows like Butterbeans and Susie and uh, go to this theater and watch all different kinds of acts. And he got inspired to create his own little shows. Uh, Hail Nimrod, young entrepreneur. By early 1913, Robert started putting on little neighborhood productions in his family's basement called McDuffie's Pin and Penny Poppy Shows. To get in a watch, you had to either pay a penny or you had to give him a pin because he needed pins to hold together the costumes. His little shows featured a chorus line that consisted of two girls, his sister Joyce and Josephine. How adorable is this shit? And that's when Josephine, at only seven years old, started to dream about being an entertainer. Not a serious dream yet. You know, she's only seven. But the dream had begun. She knew that her mother had been a dancer briefly. Their mother was happy then. Her absentee father was still a musician. You know, entertainment was in her blood. St. Louis 1913 was a great place to dream about becoming a dancer. Had a lively dance and music scene, thanks in part randomly to Mississippi riverboats. In the years before the Civil War, these riverboats provided the main transportation for goods and passengers into and out of St. Louis. But then the war put a stop to most of the Mississippi traffic for, you know, the five years it lasted. And then after the war, the growing railroads took away most of the river transportation and freight trade. What goods were on the river by this time mostly were towed in strings of barges behind tugs. And then along came a guy named uh, Captain Joseph Streckfuss, a man from a German St. Louis family. And he adapted his uh, riverboat traffic to a new era, owning several boats and experiencing continually declining freight business sales. Uh, he decided to turn his boats away from freight usage and convert them into showboats. Each of his boats had a resident band, mostly comprised of black St. Louis musicians. And around 1910, he decided that he wanted not only musicians on his boats who could read music, uh, you know, all respectable St. Louis musicians could do that, but also those who had a little more life and rhythm in their playing, a little peppier. In particular, he was looking towards New Orleans at the mouth of the river where he had heard there was a music being developed that had a new drive and vitality, music that would later come to be known as jazz. And Captain Streckfuss appointed one of his band leaders, Fate Marable, to be his chief talent spotter and soon the boats of the Streckfuss line were bringing hot New Orleans jazz musicians up the river to St. Louis, mixing with the Delta Blues, the city's two musical styles, blending and developing together. A lot of musicians who would later become famous played in these bands, like clarinetist Johnny Dodds, his brother, the drummer Baby Dodds, bassist Pops Foster, jazz legend Louis Armstrong, and of course, blues cowbell and triangle legend Grover Tater Tot McDonald, a grandfather of Michael motherfucking McDonald. It's been too long since you got McDonalded. Since you got triple M'd. Grover Tater Tot McDonald wasn't real. We all know that, right? Uh, Michael McDonald is from St. Louis, though. So there is a McDonald-St. Louis connection. So maybe, maybe some kind of relation. I don't know. I haven't done this 23 Me. Uh, Michael McDonald, born in St. Louis, 1952. Less than 50 years after Josephine. Now back to 1913, uh, St. Louis musicians learned to play with a little more fire and in a looser, more complex rhythm. And this was reflecting the dances of the day. And by 1913, America had gone dance crazy. They got a fever, dance fever. 
Uh, New York tea dances have become the rage of high society. Ballroom dancing, hot new developing trend. From 1912 to 1914, over 100 new ballroom dances were invented. People were dancing away those World War I blues. Many of the dances of the day originated in St. Louis, in those little barrel houses and clubs. Dancing anywhere she could find in the streets or the yards of the houses around her. Young Josephine mastered dance step after dance step, learning uh, every dance that came her way, building up a huge repertoire of practice steps. Then in 1915, at a ripe old age of eight, Josephine had to get a real job. Had to take a break from dancing. Had to go to work. Her mom arranged for her to uh, be a live-in maid at the nearby home of Mrs. Kaiser, a widow who lived alone. And Josephine uh, went to go live at Mrs. Kaiser's house. At first, Mrs. Kaiser seemed kind. She brought uh, Josephine a dress and a pair of shoes. But then that was about as far as her kindness went. Josephine was made to sleep in the cellar with Mrs. Kaiser's dog. Next to piles of wood and coal, Every morning at five, she was expected to get up and perform a succession of chores. She had to light the fire, peel the potatoes, empty the chamber pots. Oh, my God. Scrub the steps, sweep the rooms. Once a week, she had to do all the washing. Then she'd set off for, you know, Lincoln School as an eight-year-old. Flipping heck! Working full-time as a maid, sleeping in the fucking cellar with a dog. You know, lately, my stand-up shows, I've been highly critical about the, the whininess, the softness, the fragileness of many members of modern society. This is why. Reading shit like this is why I don't have the same amount of sympathy some people do for other people's uh, first world problems. Do we still have problems? Of course we do. But holy shit, overall life so much better than it used to be. Most people now who identify as poor still have smartphones, still have access to Wi-Fi, still have electricity, a bathtub where you don't have to wash your face and your fucking stepdad's fucking pubic hair water, right? Still have a bed you don't have to share with, you, with your siblings, you know, and have some grown-up stinky feet in your fucking face. You're not sleeping in the cellar. Of a stranger's house with a dog. Not only did eight-year-old Josephine have to sleep in the cellar with the dog and work full-time at eight years old, her boss was also an asshole. If Josephine made the slightest mistake, Mrs. Kaiser would slap her silly. She was late getting up. Mrs. Kaiser would pull her out of her bed by her ears, give her another beating. The only good that came out of her experience at Mrs. Kaiser's was the beginning of a lifelong love affair with animals. Josephine shared her food with that little dog she shared a room with. She loved that dog. The dog was crippled. Uh, having been hit by a car that permanently damaged its hind leg. And she named him Three Legs, just like Bojangles. Too bad she couldn't have ran across Bojangles. Our three-legged, one-eyed pit bull suck star would have marched up that cellar stairs, knocked Mrs. Kaiser on her cold German ass. He would have pissed on her nasty old kid-beating, mistreating face, maybe maybe taking a righteous shit in her mouth. Showbiz! That's how they do it in St. Louis! Josephine would have loved Bojangles. Another creature in Miss Kaiser's house was a white rooster who lived in a cage tucked under Josephine's work table. And Josephine named the rooster Tiny Tim. And for months, she fed and fattened and befriended Tiny Tim, talking to him as she would work. And then one day, Mrs. Kaiser told her, kill him. He's ready to be eaten. So that's fun. Numb with shock and sadness, Josephine did what she was asked because she knew she'd get beat if she didn't. She held her little friend between her knees, stretched his neck downwards, cried as she cut at his neck with a pair of scissors until the blood rushed down her legs. Kept her grip on him until he stopped twitching. Then she kissed him, plucked him, handed him to Mrs. Kaiser. And I imagine fantasized about pushing her down the stairs. Uh, Josephine got more into her history lessons at school while this was going on. Talking to interviewers years later about how she would lay in the cellar at night and fantasize about becoming as rich and pampered as any queen of Europe. She's going to get out of this fucking shithole. Finally, she got to leave Mrs. Kaiser's house after Mrs. Kaiser took, it a, took her one of her beatings too far one day. On this day, Josephine let a pot boil over on the stove. And Mrs. Kaiser didn't care for it. And she took uh, little Josephine's hand, shoved it into the boiling water to punish her. That'll teach her a lesson. Boil her skin off. Tearing herself free, Josephine ran to the home of the woman next door, howling in pain. Her skin was already peeling off her hand. The neighbor picked her up. She passed out from the pain. 
She woke up in a hospital bed to find her mom there with the doctor and a nurse. Her mother, Carrie, took her home, and that was the end of working for Mrs. Kaiser, who, as far as I know, wasn't punished. I doubt she was. I doubt she got in any trouble. Very different times. Glad we've progressed considerably since then in many ways. We may be whinier, a little softer, but we do treat each other better overall. Soon after leaving Mrs. Kaiser's house, Josephine was stuck right back in another household where she would be, again be given room and board in exchange for housework. Her parents just didn't have the money to feed her themselves. For themselves. Uh, the owners of this second home, a married couple named Mr. and Mrs. Martin, were luckily kind and took pity on her, fed her well, let her, you know, she put on some weight. She had lost weight at Mrs. Kaiser's, uh, let her sleep in her own bed. And then they sent her home a few months later when they just didn't feel right. She was just too young to, to work in their house that way. Uh, after returning home, determined not to be placed in the home of someone else again as another child maid, Josephine came up with her own way to make some money for the family. She started gathering groups of children from her neighborhood and she'd lead them to a cross town where she would take their money and then kill them. And then uh, it's estimated she killed five to 600 children that way. Uh, no, she, they would work together. Uh, she would take them across town to where the rich white folks lived and they'd go door to door offering to do anything that needed doing. Washing floors, running errands, scrubbing stoops, you know, mining babies, waxing furniture, shoveling snow, anything. On good days, she reckoned that she could make 50 cents of which she would contribute 45 cents to the Martin family budget. On bad days, when no work presented itself, she would lead the other children in scavenging uh, through the rich white folks' uh, garbage. And she continued doing stuff like that on and off, or on and off for a couple of years. And then in 1916, when she was 10, she had an experience that would change her life forever. Small gypsy caravan rolled into St. Louis. It was the first time Josephine had ever seen Romani or Roma people in their traditional brightly colored clothes. He did do a suck on the Roma people one of these days. Fascinating, fascinating culture. These nomadic people came to sell basically snake oil. A bunch of tonics and elixirs they claimed would cure everything, but really wouldn't cure a damn thing. They were exotic and charismatic, and also they were fucking con artists. You know, and before they put on a little fake medicine scam, they, they would put on a free little vaudeville show just to attract a crowd of hopefully some suckers they could, you know, swindle a little bit later with their medicine. The ringleader of the caravan set up a little outdoor stage and, amongst other things, decided to put on a little dance competition. Again, the dance craze going around the country. Josephine jumps on stage and she dances her skinny little ass off, dances her heart out. And the crowd that had gathered cheered more for her than they did for any other dancer. She stole the show, won the grand prize, which was a dollar, which was the most money she'd ever made in a day. It was the first dollar that, uh, you know, Josephine would ever make as an entertainer. She's going to make uh, more dollars than just about any other entertainer in her lifetime. For the first time in her young life, she, you know, she'd earned money for something that wasn't essentially just basic labor. She made money doing something she actually loved as opposed to hated. She'd soon dedicate her young life to making more money that way for the rest of her life. 1917 was another big year in young Josephine's life, not for a happy reason. 1917 is the year of the infamous St. Louis race riots. Let's take a few minutes to talk about East St. Louis, where the riots originated before we go further. Man, East St. Louis, rough. Situated across the river from St. Louis on the Illinois bank of the Mississippi, the two towns linked by several bridges. And to give you an idea of what it's like to live in East St. Louis, when you Google East St. Louis, Google wants to automatically add the word crime or murder to your search. I've been to St. Louis a ton of times over the years. And when asking about like where to go, what to do, I've been told over and over, wherever I go, make sure it is not East St. Louis. I've been told don't go there during the daytime even ever. Don't drive through it. Uh, when I Googled East St. Louis, almost half of the first page of search results were about or were articles about murder. Not kidding. Which is insane because its current population is only around 26,000 people. There's a lot more people where I live in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Thankfully, way less murder. Uh, the chances of being murdered in East St. Louis 
are roughly 19 times greater than the national average. If you're not good at math, that's a lot more times. The national homicide rate is around five murders per 100,000 people. In East St. Louis, it's 96 murders per 100,000, making it more murderous than Chicago or Detroit. Even worse, only 25% of the people committing these murders ever end up getting charged with murder in criminal court. The national average is 60%. So a lot of people getting killed in East St. Louis and whoever killing them, you know, is killing them is usually getting away with it. That's a sign of a very bad neighborhood. A lot of people being killed and a lot of other people not giving a shit about arresting whoever's doing it or not caring about helping the police find whoever's doing it, sign of a bad neighborhood. 95% of the people living in East St. Louis today are black. More than two-thirds of the city's children live in poverty. More than two-thirds. The median household annual income is less than $20,000 a year, right? Less than $20,000 per home. The poverty threshold for a household income, you know, is just over 25000 Oh my gosh. So more people in East St. Louis live uh, over 20% below the national threshold for poverty. Yeah, more than more than two thirds of the people live there. Man, that's a lot of extreme poverty. The unemployment rate in East St. Louis, almost twice the national average. The school system ranks is one of the worst in the state, one of the worst in the nation. It, it, essentially, it's a tiny little third world nation inside a first world nation. So sad that people living in an American town are suffering like that. And by the end of 1917, East St. Louis was even worse of a place to live than it is now. Uh, kicking off 1970, was a, 1917, it was a choking industrial wasteland, grimy, smoke polluted, you know, crisscross with railroad lines. Most of the industry was meat related, stockyards, slaughterhouses, packing plants, tanneries, filling the city along with aluminum smelters, breweries, chemical factories, tons of fun places, you know, uh, that treated their laborers very, very well. You know, made sure that they were, you know, healthy and safe, not just disposable cogs in a soulless machine. It was a place where you'd feel old by 30, feel ancient by 40, broke you down, dehumanized you. One big ass factory of hopelessness and despair. And back in 1917, a lot more people lived there than now, over 60,000 people, which was a problem because less than 30,000 lived there in 1900. And while the population had exploded, the amount of available jobs had not. Far too many people for the amount of jobs available. You know, and the white people living in the white neighborhoods of St. Louis were starting to lose out on more and more labor jobs to their black neighbors. They're getting more and more pissed. Racial tension is building. And then some racist white politicians running in local 1917 elections began to uh, increase this tension by getting poor white residents of St. Louis to think that the reason that they're poor was because of these black workers in East St. Louis. They're stealing their jobs. It's just an easy tactic to say, I'll get, if I get elected, I'll make sure they don't take your jobs anymore. Fucking scapegoats. Historically, politicians fucking love a scapegoat, don't they? Corporate greed, that's not the reason you're suffering. No, no, lobbyists selling away your economic interests to allow factory owners to become disproportionately wealthy at your expense. That's not the problem. No, it's, uh, you know what the, who the problem is? It's insert ethnic group or foreign faction here. It's those assholes. If we could just get rid of those assholes, everyone would be happily skipping around on streets of gold. And, and the hate mongering worked as it so often does because too many people either don't want to think in complex terms or aren't intellectually capable of doing so due to multi-generational poverty and educational disadvantages. And people get fucking pissed. They're getting riled up. Unfounded rumors begin to circulate about black residents arming themselves, preparing to invade St. Louis and start raiding white people's homes and raping their women. It's all propaganda, pure paranoia. In response to this nonsensical slander and lies, groups of white residents decide to attack first. You know, some of that get them before they get us talk. Start holding some meetings. Angry mobs are formed. And then on the night of July 1st, a white man drives a Ford over the one of the bridges into East St. Louis, shoots into some black homes, 
In response, some African uh, Americans arm gather in the area. They shoot into another oncoming Ford, killing two men that they think are more assailants. Nope. They ended up shooting two white police officers who were coming over to investigate the initial shooting. And now shit is on. The fuse had been lit. Now it's triggering the explosives. The next morning, whites pouring out of a meeting in the labor temple downtown began beating blacks with guns, rocks, and pipes. True mob mentality is taking over. White residents set fire to black homes. They shoot black residents as they flee from burning properties. Blacks are being lynched in other areas of the city, such as downtown St. Louis, where Josephine and her family live. Things get worse the next day on July 2nd. More white mobs loot, burn more homes. Entire neighborhoods are set on fire. Fire would consume a total of 312 homes and buildings. Family life for many would be destroyed forever. By the time it was all over and schools reopened, black student enrollment was down 35%. Fleeing blacks were not only savagely beaten, but were in many cases shot, lynched. White children, young men, women stood by, cheering them on, joining in the violence. In one case, a corpse was strung up uh, on a telegraph pole by a group of, who shouted, get hold and pull for East St. Louis. They hauled up the rope. Thousands of black residents would uh, tried streaming across uh, you know, the bridges into St. Louis when the race war got into full swing. And most would never make it. Police shut down, you know, the, their uh, road to escape. So no one could escape, you know, just kept them pinned on the bridge. Some in desperation tried to swim. They jumped off the bridge, drowned in the river. It was a chaotic, dramatic scene. Mothers carrying infants as they fl- fled the city. Men using baby carriages to try and push the elderly and the disabled and their few pitiful possessions to safety. Crying children carrying household pets. When it was all over, it was like a war scene. It was all over after another day of looting and violence and fires. On July 3rd, a congressional investigating committee reported that at least eight whites and 39 Negroes were killed. That's their quote. The Black Rights Organization, the NAACP, estimates the number at near 100. Some estimate that uh, roughly 250 African-Americans were murdered over the course of those three days. It was the worst race riot in American history, and East St. Louis would never be the same. And young Josephine Baker was an eyewitness to it all. The riot called a purge by some, which seems like a more apt description, so stared into her memory that she recounted it again and again for the rest of her life. 47 years later, when interviewed for Esquire magazine, Josephine would say, East St. Louis was a horrible place. Yes, worse than the Deep South. I was a little girl, and all I remember is people. They ran across the bridge from East St. Louis to escape the rednecks, the whites killing and beating them. I never forget my people screaming, a friend of my father's face shot off, a pregnant woman cut open. I see them running to get to the bridge. I have been running ever since. Yeah, man, stuck with her as it would. The riot changed race, relation, uh, race relations in the St. Louis area for years and years to come. There was no real apology when it was all over. The world was, uh, or the wound, excuse me, was never given a chance to heal. Only two white men were convicted of murder for beating one woman and killing her husband and son. Seven other white men were arrested for serious crimes. Twelve black men were arrested for serious crimes. The local black population in both East St. Louis and St. Louis now had something new to worry about. Racism, of course, had existed before, as had, you know, constant insults, segregation, sporadic violence, including lynchings, but nothing like an all-out three-day violent purge. Josephine wanted nothing more than to get the fuck out of St. Louis, put his memory long behind her. It was bad enough that her mother had twice sent her away from home to work. Now it seemed the gangs of white racists could render you homeless by burning your home to the ground. Uh, Luckily for Josephine's entertainment dreams, the city was alive with music after the riots. New dance steps kept coming along for her to learn. And, uh, you know, with the nationwide songwriting boom now in full swing, there were always new songs, which she enjoyed singing. 1919, when Josephine was just 13, after missing her curfew and getting a bare-ass whipping with the belt from her mother, Josephine ran away from home, fully entered the adult wor- world, which in many ways she'd already lived in since she was around eight. 
and just, I have to take one quick drink of water and I'm going to keep talking. I drank about four glasses of water this morning. I don't know why I'm so thirsty. Uh, before we move further, further, how creepy are bare bottom spankings uh, at 13? I mean, come on, too, too old. Might've been somewhat normal for the time, but 13 seems way too old for bare bottom spanking. Most 13 year old girls are well into puberty by the age of 13, which means they have pubic hair, which means, I don't know, maybe you should, uh, you know, not have them take their underwear off for any form of punishment whatsoever. I never understood the bare bottom part of spankings uh, at any age. I feel like a spanky with clothes on is plenty of punishment. You know, so maybe we should let their, the kids keep their clothes on when it comes to being, you know, punished. Can we do that? Can we agree on, the, on that? No more naked kid punishment? I mean, it, it feels unreasonable. Uh, anyways, at 13, the owner of a local ice cream shop lets Josephine stay at his house after she runs away. Doesn't appear as if he's some creepy perv either, <clears throat> which is pretty sweet. Uh, we have plenty of creepy pervs in these stories. Nice to meet dudes who are just good dudes. After a few weeks of refuge and a chance to gather her thoughts, Josephine goes to live with her grandma. She also got herself another job as a waitress at a musician's hangout on Pine Street, Chestnut in the Chestnut Valley District, a place called the Old Chauffeur's Club. Life then began to get a little bit better for Josephine. She was now earning a regular wage, even if it was just a small one. You know, she was, she was meeting the kind of people she wanted to be one day. She wasn't, you know, living with an angry mom. Josephine loved life at the Old Chauffeur's Club, the best black entertainers in town frequented it. Sometimes played there and she, she waited on tables. She would kid around with them, imitating the way that, you know, they'd sing and dance, amusing them by making the same funny faces and horsing around like, you know, like she had when kids made fun of her at school for wearing the same dress over and over and having those fucked up high heels with the heels torn off shoes. Also next door to the club was the Pythian Hall, the clubhouse of the Pythian Society. It was in the society's marching band that her father, Eddie, played the snare drum. And while she's working at the club, he was dr- drumming in the clubhouse band. All right, here in... Uh, that she was working at the old chauffeur's club. Eddie took to dropping in to see her from time to time. Now in his mid-30s, he'd remarried, taken on three stepchildren, and his career was going pretty well. Uh, recently, he'd even played drums for a season with the Ringling Brothers Circus. Seeing him as prosperous, Josephine would ask him for money time to time, and she'd give him some. Or, you know, he'd give her some sometimes. But one day, she asked for a watch. He refused, saying he couldn't afford it, and Josephine felt abandoned by her dad all over again. She felt slighted by the fact that he had money to raise three new, you know, stepchildren, but didn't have money to buy his own daughter, a daughter he'd abandoned the gift of a watch. Uh, on one day, the one day each week, Josephine had off from the club Sunday. Josephine would walk to the Booker T. Washington Theater, pay a nickel for admission, and enter what to her was a magical, enchanted world. Uh, a world of music and bright colors, of laughter and magic. She watched the line of high-kicking chorus girls, wanted to be one of them. And she also met uh, Willie Wells when she was 13. And who is Willie Wells? Well, we're going to find out right after a quick word from another sponsor. Uh, Time Talk, uh, Time Talk, excuse me, is brought to you today by the A-Hole Air Banjo Academy. Use the promo code BAKER to get 50% off some St. Louis Air Banjo Ragtime lessons. In just one or two minutes, you'll be jamming along to tunes just like this. So, you know, fucking pretty sweet. That's, that's, you know, you can get that in one or two lesson stops. So, you know, get a hold, get to plucking, you son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kidding, of course, about the a hole Air Banjo Academy. Uh, Time Suck is brought to you today by Hemp's. With age comes wisdom. 
We're getting older. can also be a downer. 40% of men by the age of 40 struggle from not being able to get and maintain an erection. Thankfully, there's fourhims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skincare, sexual wellness for men. So far, I've been lucky. So far, the only boner problems I've had has been getting too many of them. But I'm over 40 now. And I know the day is coming when it's going to be harder for me to be well harder and coming. When that day comes, I'm going to be uh, hitting up hymns. I already use them for my morning and evening face lotion routines. Why wouldn't I use them for erectile dysfunction as well? Cheaper and more discreet than running to the doctor's office. Hims connects you with real licensed doctors, FDA-approved pharmaceutical products to treat erectile dysfunction. Simply answer questions about your medical history. And if you're approved by the doctor, products are shipped discreetly and directly to your door. Try Hims today by starting off uh, with a free online visit. Go to forhims.com slash timesuckED. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash timesuckED. Forhims.com slash timesuckED. Prescription products are subject to doctor approval, require an online consultation with a physician who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. See website for full details and safety information. This could cost hundreds if you went in person to the doctor's office or pharmacy. Remember, that's forhims.com slash timesuckED. Link in today's episode description. A button in the sponsor section of the new and improved TimeSuck app. All right, back to Willie Wells. Josephine met Willie Wells uh, when she was 13. Willie was 15 or 16. And shortly after meeting, the two decided to get married. Things were moving fast. And they did get married. Both of their families met at the church. The two were wed. Both families were apparently cool with it. I mean, I mentioned she was 13, right? Different times. Uh, the marriage wouldn't last long. Young Willie wasn't much of a moneymaker. He wasn't a better provider than her father or stepfather. And young Josephine, truly just a kid, you know, yelled at him about not following through on whatever foolish promises any 16-year-old boy would make in this situation. And then one night, when they'd only been married just for a few months, Willie burst into the house. They were staying with Josephine's parents, Carrie and Arthur at the time. He ran past Carrie and Arthur, who were sitting in their living room, bolted up the stairs to his and Josephine's room, yelling, come on out here, let me break your neck. The door slammed shut behind him when Carrie and Arthur heard a loud smash and banging. They ran upstairs into the room. Josephine was standing there holding a broken bottle. Willie was standing in shock, blood pouring down his face from a deep cut just above his eye. Josephine simply said, I was defending myself. Willie ran off to get uh, to the doctor to get his eyes stitched, and he never came back. That was the end of the marriage, uh, which had never been made legal through the courthouse anyway. Uh, shortly before this fight, Josephine had, had bought a bassinet, and there were rumors that she was pregnant. Her brother Richard will go on to think that after Willie left, Josephine got a back alley abortion, and this rumor would lead others to speculate that this alleged abortion may have somehow damaged her reproductive organs, enough to uh, make it difficult later in life for her to carry a pregnancy to the full term. 1920, at the age of 14, Josephine was recruited from the old chauffeur's club into the Jones Family Band, who were essentially locally known street performers. She learned to play the trombone and would play and dance and sometimes even sing in the band, would often play in front of the local Booker T. Washington Theater, entertaining those who waited to buy a ticket or those who were pouring out uh, after watching a show. And at one of these shows, she caught the eye of the theater's manager, Tommy Two Fingers Teacup. Now, Teacup wasn't Tommy's real last name. They called him that because he was from London, England. And they called him two fingers because he only had two fingers on each hand, which wasn't actually true. He had two thumbs on each hand, but they didn't call him Tommy Two Thumbs because St. Louis already had a Tommy Two Thumbs. Tommy Two Thumbs, no chance. Uh, that guy was called no chance because if you tried to beat him in a game of thumb wrestling, you had no chance of winning because, you know, he had two thumbs to, to your one thumb. And that's why he was the Missouri State Thumb Wrestling Champion from 1906 to 1935. He liked to wrestle. I like this Tommy uh, Two Thumb Wrestle guy. Well, sorry, Chikatilo, but he's not real. 
Sorry, Meat Sacks. I think I had a small stroke about the time I said Tommy uh, Two Fingers Teacup because that's when I started to lie again. Let's back up just a bit. During one of our street performances in front of the Booker T. Washington Theater, Josephine caught the eye of the theater's manager whose real name was Red Burnett. That's right. Now we're talking truth again. Uh, years later, Red would recall first seeing Josephine saying she was a bitty thing, standing there singing to the people. She had a lovely voice and kind of handled herself like Diana Ross. She was just that thrilling. He made a mental note that as soon as he got the chance, he'd find something for her to do and help her out in the theater and take her off the streets. His opportunity came a few weeks later when the weekly show at the theater was being given uh, by a touring troupe called the Dixie Steppers. Their producer, Bob Russell, had a problem. His troupe was short and act. During the previous week's booking in Kansas City, his husband and wife comedy team had fallen out with each other so badly that they'd split both personally and professionally. Gone their separate ways. Now he needed a replacement. Uh, Burnett at once thought of the Jones family band. Old man Jones was sent for the whole family, including Josephine, was worked into the show. The band was scheduled to perform two spots, and during one of them, Josephine would do a little comedy dance. And her dancing was a hit. She'd later say, seeing everybody looking at me electrified me as if I'd had a slug of gin. You know, as a touring comic uh, for coming up on 20 years, totally get it. Man, a good crowd can make you feel well when you're sick, make you feel rested when you're exhausted. And if you're already feeling good, can make you feel like the most alive you've ever felt. And as Red Burnett proudly recalled years later, the minute she hit the stage, she arched her back just like an animal. She, she jut that ass up like a rooster, flipping his tail. She was a natural. By now, at the age of 14, Josephine's huge repertoire of steps, her leggy goofiness, and her face pulling, or, you know, making all silly faces, was, was uh, beginning to develop into a style entirely her own. She was a true original, never sticking to a set routine. She didn't really know any set routines. Instead, she'd just kind of jump into whatever next step felt right. She would just completely improvise her dances in the spirit of the music, just like a proficient jazz player could do. Uh, she became like this living dancing embodiment of jazz, of the jazz era to many. Uh, she jumped from one appropriate routine to another, like a good blues guitarist using the right scales to kind of you know, whip up the appropriate solo on the fly for whatever key the song was in. Producer Bob Russell was amused enough by Josephine's dancing to hire her and the Jones family band to stay with the troupe for the rest of its tour. She happily accepted. How cool. She's going on tour. Think about where she was just a few years ago, being sent out by her mom to be a child maid and sleep in a cellar with a three-legged dog, no offense, Bojangles, sleeping in a bed with her entire family, choosing to lay on the floor with the fucking rats to get away from the smell of her stepdad's feet, using newspapers for blankets. She's no longer going to have to eat, you know, uh, old discarded fruit nails, no, no longer going to have to steal little chunks of coal to make a couple pennies for the family. Uh, in those late days of vaudeville, there were hundreds of acts touring theaters all over America. They were mostly booked by a few big agencies, assembling shows and sending them out on the road. The big white bookers at the time were the United Booking Office, uh, Booking Office, yeah, run by B.F. Keith and Edward Albee, an agency long defunct now, and the William Morris Agency, which is very much still around. Uh, William Morris merged with another talent company a few years back, is now known as William Morris Endeavor, or sometimes just as Endeavor. I remember meeting William Morris agents early in my career at a comedy festival in South Beach and Florida, desperately wanting them to want to sign me. They did not. Dang it. Oh, my heck. Luckily, many years later, UTA would sign me, and I love working with them. And uh, William Morris can suck my dick. Not bitter at all. Not bitter. No bitterness. Uh, Black Performers 1920 had their own agency, the Theater Owners Booking Association, known as TOBA, which functioned mostly in the South and Midwest, hiring blacks to play only two blacks. Very segregated. It was Toba that was handling the Dixie Steppers tour. Toba would die with the Great Depression not that many years later. Some of the theaters at which the white vaudevillians played were pretty terrible, but the places where the black performers played were always worse. Many were rickety wooden shacks, often with leaking roofs, broken seats. 
Sometimes members of the audience had to sit on the floor, but the Dixie Steppers made the best of whatever venue they were performing in. Man, my God, reminds me of my early stand-up years. Most road comics, a term for comics that travel and do shows all over the country as opposed to comics who uh, like tend to stick into you know, one or two markets like New York or LA where they, where they do stand up at night, but usually do something else during the day, like work as a writer or actor or producer. Uh, anyways, a lot, a lot of road comics when I got started uh, traveling in late 2000, early 2001, would get paid first to tour uh, working one-nighters. Uh, essentially a one-nighter is any venue that decides to have comedy either one show a week or, or, you know, even less, like once a month, as opposed to a comedy club. It's a performance space dedicated to comedy, dedicated to multiple nights of comedy a week. And the term one-nighter can be applied to all different kinds of venues. A hotel lounge with a little radio shack, shitty mic, and a little four-by-four, two-foot-tall platform in the corner next to the karaoke machine can be the stage for a one-nighter. It can be an Elks Lodge that decides to give comedy night, you know, a chance. A a nightclub dance floor where you do an hour of comedy before an 80s night DJ comes on can be a one-nighter. They're fucking terrible. They tend to be ran by people who don't understand entertainment at all. They don't understand, you know, how, how lighting works, how to have a decent sound system, how uh, turning the goddamn baseball game off in the middle of the show off of the big screen is important, how they should maybe tell customers to shut the fuck up during the show. Uh, I performed in rough bars like the 8-Ball in Great Falls, Montana. Not sure if it's even still there. People in the crowd would literally be arm wrestling like it was a bad 80s movie where people are, are playing pool 20 feet from the stage where fights are breaking out. Uh, I, yeah, I've known comics to get literally attacked on some of these stages, like literally beat up on stage. Uh, the bottom rung of the stand-up circuit is hell, but when you're young and you're just getting going, it's also exhilarating because you're on some level in the entertainment business. Showbiz, right? You're getting, you're getting paid to perform. And I have a lot of fond memories now of those early struggles, you know, of paying those dues. And I imagine that the gigs, the Dixie Steppers, uh, Steppers, you know, were playing, were, were kind of the equivalent of these gigs, probably worse. I'm sure worse. Obviously, the travel uh, accommodations are worse because of rampant segregation and racism. But, you know, uh, for Josephine, it's probably, you know, that mixture of like, oh, God, this is a dump, but also exciting. I'm, I'm doing it. The star of the show in which Josephine found herself was a singer named Clara Smith, one of a string of fine vaudeville blues singers with the last name of Smith who around at the time. It was Clara, uh, Mammy, Trixie, Bessie, none of them related. Josephine was getting nine bucks a week on the road. You know, quite a bit for a girl who was exhilarated to win that one dollar that one time. Right, She was uh, you know, uh, still too small and scrawny to join the chorus. Not long after joining the tour, producer Bob Russell decided she should uh, be Clara Smith's dresser and have you know, one little comedic dance in the show. Uh, she was delighted for both. She, she idolized Clara, whose voice she said later would give her, give her chills. Blue singers like Clara were the hot new thing in 1920, a nationwide craze kicked off by Mammy Smith's record, Crazy Blues. That record sold so many copies in Harlem that the record company sent a man there to make sure that somebody wasn't simply giving him away. They sold so fast, they felt like they were giving them away. The blues was hot. Uh, Clara, then 26, acted like a star. She had a big personality. She knew that part of a star's job was to act glamorous, both on stage and off. Josephine loved it. And Clara quickly acquired a real affection for Josephine. They took to spending their afternoons together, where Clara would help Josephine improve her reading and writing, would buy her little gifts of licorice, peppermint sticks, and sweet potato pie. It was the nicest anyone had ever treated her. In April of 1921, after ping-ponging around the country, Josephine's little show made it to Philadelphia for their final performance. It was at this show that the future famous chorus girl got to perform as a chorus girl for the very first time, filling in for an injured dancer. However, because Josephine, still only 14, was very skinny, they didn't have a costume that would fit her. The smallest costume they had was still way too big and baggy for her, and when she put it on, she looked like a clown. Looked like a little girl playing dress-up, which in a way, she was. 
And when she popped out on stage at the end of the chorus line, the audience burst out into laughter. And rather than get embarrassed, this is so cool. These little moments people have in their lives when they could, they could fold and it could send things spiraling in one direction or they could adapt and rise to the occasion and it, and it sends their life on an entirely new trajectory. Rather than get embarrassed, you know, she embraces the laughter. Just like when those kids are making fun of her in school. You know, when she's a little kid and she decided to make funny faces and just, you know, control the laughter. She does the same thing here. And she starts hamming it up and intentionally dancing, you know, even goofier, making funny faces, you know, with her silly costume. And the crowd fucking loved her, ate it up. And, the, and that performance helped lead to another show being produced in Philly, which would lead to everything else, a show where she got to be the comedic chorus girl. When the rest of the Dixie Steppers took off touring again, Josephine stayed in Philly. And it was there in Philly where she would meet her second husband, Willie Baker. Two husbands, two Willies. She loved a Willie. <laughs> Boom, boom. You get a vaudeville joke. Coming in. Okay. Uh, Willie was a small, wiry, black 25-year-old man who had previously worked as a horse jockey. I always find it as an interesting job. I'm pretty sure that, uh, I don't know, this, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure that Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, uh, you know, who produces the suck here, if I didn't thank him at the beginning, I think he used to work as a horse jockey a couple years ago. I know that he was either a disc jockey or a horse jockey. I get confused because based on experience, I would say disc jockey. Based on overall physical size, I would say a horse jockey. He was a jockey of some kind. Anywho, <laughs> Steamboat. I did that for me. Steamboat Willie Baker was, uh, was done with horses by the time he met young Josephine, only 15. And he was working as a railroad porter, which gave him a nice steady income. Again, different times, 25-year-old dating a 15-year-old, you know, no one's batting an eye, but whatever. A pair of lopes quickly after meeting. No church ceremony this time around, but, you know, this time it's legal. They go to a courthouse in Camden, New Jersey, get a wedding certificate. Uh, despite being legal, this marriage wouldn't last much longer than the first one. After getting married, the two moved into a small boarding house set up for local theater performers. Within months of getting hitched, Josephine gets a lead on an audition for a new musical called Shuffle Along that was being workshopped in Philly before going on to Broadway in New York City. And Josephine decided if she got the part that she wanted, she would head to New York, biggest theater town in the USA, if not in the world. Well, she didn't get it initially. They felt her skin was too dark, preferring lighter-skinned black girls for the chorus line because the show was performed for white audiences this time. Now, this stung for Josephine because as a kid, she felt like the odd man out with her family for being too light-skinned, right? She just, you know, couldn't get it right for anybody. You know, she didn't get the part. Uh, she did become obsessed with getting the part. Tenacity. That's the word they throw around a lot now for kids in grade school and junior high. Tenacity. You got to be tenacious if you want to accomplish something great. You have to persist in the face of adversity. Well, Josephine was a tenacious motherfucker. A study in tenacity. Her new husband didn't want to move to New York City, so she said she'd move there without him. That's exactly what she did, and they'd soon part ways. She followed the show's progress as it moved from Philly to uh, New York, and it became a huge hit. Shuffle Along became such a success that 63rd Street, where its theater, the 63rd Street Theater, was located, had to be converted into a one-way street to handle all the additional traffic. Josephine uh, left Willie and Philly. A few months into their marriage, headed out to New York City. Not even She didn't get the part. She just, she just wanted to audition again. She didn't have any friends in New York. And before auditioning, she had to sleep on a bench in Central Park for a couple nights in a row. Just sleep out in the outdoors. It was brave, crazy, stupid, courageous, insane. Yeah, and she did it. And this time she made it into the chorus line. Her starting wage is now $30 a week. Think about that. She's sleeping on a bench in Central Park, getting ready for the biggest audition of her life. And she nails it. And she gets $30 a week over three times what she'd made with the Dixie Steppers. Uh, she also had to lie to the producer to get the part. Say, I had to say she was 17 instead of, you know, her real age of 15. And now that she was in this show, she stole it. 
She was the comedic relief chorus line. Audiences adored her. She had it. You could already see, you know, she was a star in the making. Uh, while the rest of the audience, you know, or while the audience, excuse me, loved her, the, the rest of the chorus line hated her. They were jealous and spiteful. Some of the other dancers would actually uh, push and trip her as she went out on stage trying to sabotage her act, but they couldn't phase the girl who slept in that St. Louis cellar. She was unflappable. The flapper girl who was unflappable. Uh, when they tripped her, she would incorporate the stumble into just some improvised gag, just to make it funny to the, uh, the delight of the crowd. The other girls despised her also because she was darker skinned than they were, and they nicknamed her Monkey, which is. A little bit offensive, a little racist. Uh, they played tricks on her, like taking all of her makeup and costumes, you know, just, again, just trying to sabotage her career. As a black woman living in the first decade of the 20th century, man, she had, she, she was so uh, disheartened by this. She had seen plenty of white on black racism. Now she's seen a lot of black on black racism. Chorus members started getting encore specifically because of her, right? She's not going to let them get her down. Reviewers start singling her out for, you know, praising her. Uh, people start asking at the box office whether the cross-eyed girl, when she'd make that funny face at the end of the chorus line, was still in the show. You know, they wanted to make sure that the, she was there before they bought a ticket. Producers of other shows in New York notice her, start talking to, uh, you know, about uh, having their, her join one of their productions. Her star is on the rise. Some big-time theater producers, Noble Sissel and Yubi Blake, who are going to lead a big touring company to perform Shuffle Along around the country, hear about Josie and decide to scout her out for their touring show. Um, they were too hard at work on a new musical, a racetrack comedy adventure called In Bamville, to go and see Josephine themselves. So they sent an experienced old-time song and dance scout from their office to check her out. And Yubi always remembered how excited this guy was when he came back because he said, he came running back to us. He said, get that girl. She's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Get her. Um, it was decided that when the number one company of Shuffle Long finished its run at 63rd Street Theater, went on the road, Josephine would join it, billed as the comedy chorus girl. The show finished its New York City run August 1922 after over 500 performances, immediately set off with Josephine to play the Selwyn Theater in Boston. And the show was a huge hit in Boston. Sellout after sellout for four months. Uh, they could have kept going, but they finally had to leave because another production that was scheduled to perform in the same theater you know, you know, said that they weren't they weren't going to get out and give them their you know preordained dates or the dates they registered for. They were going to sue them. Uh, Josephine's now making thirty five dollars a week, more than all of her other relatives combined. Who that, you know that they were making back in St. Louis. She turned sixteen in Boston, having the time of her life. She's successful. She comes so far in such a short amount of time. After Boston, the show moves to Chicago for four months, sells it out there, then Des Moines, Indianapolis, then back to St. Louis. Selling out all over the place. She'd later say, you know, that obviously she was excited to see her family, but when she made it back to the family home, it made her super sad, depressed, ashamed. She was appalled by the contrast between the world she had left just so recently and the world she now inhabited. She really, truly noticed how filthy her old neighborhood and home where she was embarrassed by how she'd lived. She noticed how cold the unheated home was. She saw the same old laundry tub that she used to bathe in, the one with the dirty, Room temperature bath water already used by her stepfather, mother, and three siblings. She remembered how much she fucking hated living in St. Louis. Uh, I, I get to seeing things in a different way on some level. You know, experience changes your perspective as you get older in life and go through new things. When I, when I first moved to Spokane, Washington from Riggins, Idaho, Spokane seemed enormous, enormous, like this big cosmopolitan metropolis. You know, I'd lived in Las Vegas my freshman and sophomore years of high school, but I didn't have a car and I rarely left my neighborhood. So I really didn't experience much of the city. Uh, I'd been in Anchorage, Alaska when I was very young. Don't remember much of that. You know, kindergarten, first, second grade. That was about it. I've been to Los Angeles one time for literally one day when I was 12. Been to Salt Lake City for part of one day. 
drove through Phoenix with my dad once for, you know, as long as it takes to drive through a city. And that's it. You know, I've never been to any other cities, never been uh, east of the Mississippi. I'd, I'd never been east of Idaho. The overwhelming majority of my childhood was based in Riggins. And compared to Riggins, Spokane felt like Tokyo, you know? And then my junior year of college, I got to spend a semester in London, England. And that city blew my mind. Huge. You know, I had to learn how to use the subway, took trains and public buses for the first time. When I returned to Spokane, that same big city felt so small and, and, and uh, inadequate. And then when I returned to Riggins, I almost couldn't believe I lived in this tiny little town of 400 plus people. My old home suddenly felt so foreign and small. I went from a city full of history, museums, a huge theater district, nightclubs, tens of thousands of bars, pubs, entertainment everywhere. Everything a city could offer, it had. And now I'm back in a town where the only grocery store is about a third the size of Walgreens, right? And has far less than a Walgreens would have. A town that doesn't even have a bowling alley or a stoplight. And I wanted to get the fuck out. Felt so small, suddenly I felt, it felt claustrophobic. I mean, you know, now, now that I knew what existed elsewhere, even visiting there felt like being trapped. I wanted the energy of that city again. And, and, and I feel a little different now, by the way. Now I like the, you know, the mix of both the city and the country. I got to experience both. But I think I relate a tiny bit to what Josephine must have felt seeing her own stomping ground again. You know, and, and I get how she felt about her actual home too. You know, I, I had a great home when I was a kid in a little part of Riggins called North Riggins. It's my grandparents' home, but you know, it's like my home too. And it seemed like such a magical, it was such a magical place growing up. Clean, nice new TV, new fireplace, well-maintained little yard with a decorative hedge, ditch, garden and deck overlooking the river. My grandparents no longer own that home, the home I used to live uh, down the street from, you know, the neighborhood I spent over half my childhood in, a place that used to seem so big when I rode my first bike around the block, a place that seemed so vibrant and alive. And then when I gave my mother-in-law a tour of this little block about two years ago, man, did it seem small and depressed and run down. Like if you saw it in a documentary, it would be used as an example of rural blight, poverty, junk in a lot of the lawns, old busted up cars, only about one in three yards have actual green grass. The houses are so tiny, paint's peeling everywhere. The road isn't paved, just gravel and dust. No sidewalks, no civic pride. None of the trees are pruned or trimmed. I'll always have a special place in my heart for that little slice of the earth, but compared to any neighborhood where at least half the people living in it at least kind of give a shit about their how their property looks, yeah, it's, it's a dump. And I imagine Josephine must have felt this times 100, right? She probably felt like an alien in her old home. She changed and evolved so much. She's seen so much since she left St. Louis. Well, she'd never see, she wouldn't see her family again after leaving St. Louis for 14 years. She'd send money home on a regular basis to make sure her siblings were taken care of. But, you know, after that, she had no interest in going back. Josephine's dad, Eddie, he showed up in St. Louis at an after party at the old chauffeur's club at one of her shows. And because he was a piece of shit, he tried to use his daughter's name to get hired on as a production's drummer. They said no, and Josephine would never see her father again. Shuffled along, went on to play Louisville, Lexington, Toledo, Grand Rapids, Detroit, Buffalo, Rochester, Atlantic City, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, even Peoria. And it was a huge hit. She made a lot of money. In the summer of 1923, the company had a short layoff, and the show's producers threw now 17-year-old Josephine into a new production of theirs as one of the leads. That musical they were working on earlier, that Bamville was now ready to go into rehearsal. And Josephine was to be one of the principal stars in a part specially designed for her. She was now going to be paid 125 bucks a week, an amazing sum for those days. She would be billed as the highest paid chorus girl in the world. Think about how quick she's rising. The show would be a bit of a flop, but it would still run on, uh, you know, on Broadway for four months and tour for several months in various other locations after that. Man, two years ago, she'd make nine bucks a week and that was big money. Five years before that, she's doing odd chores in the hopes of making 50 cents a day. 125 bucks a week would put Josephine at $6,500 for the year if she worked every week. Now, of course she didn't. 
but it seems like she worked uh, at least eight months, which would be over four grand for the year. Based on some old IRS data I found, that would put her well into the top 10% of the average household income of the day. She was doing that as a woman, a black woman in a very racist, sexist society where she wasn't even allowed in a lot of stores, restaurants, and hotels in various parts of the country. And women had just received the right to vote a few years back in 1920. Uh, very inspirational. May of 1925, this new production, which had changed its name from Banville to the not at all racist sounding name Chocolate Dandies, had now folded. Josephine, who is now well-known in New York City theater circles, took a job as a hostess in the also not racist sounding at all Broadway nightclub named the Plantation Theater Restaurant. <laughs> Names are a little dicey. Oh, my heck. Uh, the plantation matched her chocolate dandy salary of $125 a week. And I, I didn't pick these names. Just remember that. Little note about these nightclubs. In cities all across the world where there were theater scenes, elegant nightclubs were springing up to cater to the theater crowd after they'd left the theater for the evening. They would keep the party going until late, late in the evening, you know, until the early morning. with More singing, dancing, and drinks, and merriment. I mean, this is a flipping roaring 20s after all. Flapper girls, martinis, good times. And a lot of theater stars would go, you know, sing and dance. Some more of these clubs after their shows, they could double dip. You know, it meant more money for the performers. And of course, to help draw in a crowd for these clubs. I mean, if you're a big fan of a show, how cool would that be? To go watch the person you would just watch put on the show in a more intimate setting. You know, you could see them, maybe even talk to them, maybe dance with them, have a drink with them. It's basically the equivalent of going to a movie and then after the movie, hanging out at a club with like James Franco or Matt Damon or, you know, Charlize Theron or The Rock, or Kevin Hart, or something. Fucking crazy. Uh, the Roaring Twenties, man, they were crazy. They were a wild time, novel time. In the 1920s, for the first time in U.S. history, more Americans lived in urban areas than rural ones. City living was suddenly where life was at. Showbiz! The economy doubled in size. Suddenly, people had a lot of disposable income, more than they'd ever had before, and they wanted to have fun with that money. Hence all the music, theater, nightclubs. Also, thanks to uh, nationwide advertising campaigns that spread to chain stores, people were culturally connected across the country now like never before. People across America, you know, listened to the same music, did the same dances, even used the same slang like they never had before. Uh, 1920s slang, by the way, maybe my favorite era of slang. They went went nuts with it. They got real into their slang. That sounds like berries to me. Don't take any wooden nickels. Give that flower flusher some giggle water and pull the hay banner around. We got some hotsy totsy choice bits of calico to get zazzled with. Now let's blouse. They knew how to have fun and have a good time. Also, women were allowed to behave in mainstream society like never before in the 1920s. These flappers, these young women with bobbed hair and short skirts, they drank, smoked, spoke crudely and candidly, were more sexually free than previous generations. Sheba's getting loose with the Barney Muggin. A period called the Jazz Age also coincided with the Roaring Twenties. The Jazz Age would roll into the 30s as well. The Jazz Age refers to the initial nationwide explosion of the music thought up on the Mississippi River, you know, down towards New Orleans, but also in between St. Louis and New Orleans. Radios blasting out jazz from radio stations and homes nationwide for the first time in the 1920s. Now, basically, something like the 20s were the most fun time to be alive in America ever up until that point. It was a great time for just someone like Josephine Baker to have the talents and interests that she did. However, no matter how famous she got, she still was black in what was an ex- still an extremely racist nation. She was still haunted by the St. Louis race riots in 1917. Every time she wasn't allowed in a business or overheard a racial slur, white audiences may have adored her, but also many of them, you know, wouldn't let her in their homes, wouldn't see her as an equal. They saw her as a fun novelty. The mainstream culture of white America wasn't willing to totally embrace a black woman. And then in 1925, an opportunity popped up for Josephine to find a place that would embrace her to take her career further outside of America. A talent scout named Caroline Dudley 
had come to New York to perform, uh, or excuse me, to put together a cast for a new French production in Paris. And Caroline offered to double Josephine's salary to 250 bucks a week, far more than she would ever be able to make in an American production. Basically, that was the equivalent of getting a job offer, you know, for a job that paid over $200,000 a year. Now, that's what the inflation calculators say, but I, I bet it felt like more than that even. And Josephine took it, and she went on to become by far the most internationally famous black woman in history. She went on to become the early 20th century equivalent to Beyonce, but in some ways more famous because she was the first to do what she was doing. She's a pioneer in different ways. It's like she was Beyonce and, and Michelle Obama and uh, Danielle Luna, for you modeling history fans, all rolled into the same person. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In 1925, Josephine went to Paris, appeared in the show that opened on October 2nd at the Theatre des Champs-Élysées, La Revue Negre. She performed in two different numbers during the same show that was basically a jazz musical showing Parisians the artistry of African cultures. If this musical was performed today, people would lose their fucking minds about the, uh, you know, over, over-the-top racist European depiction of African life. But it doesn't seem that the French meant to be racist. Uh, was there some ra- racism? Yes. Not nearly as much as in America, but yes. Over the years in France, Josephine would date and fall in love with a few men who would, you know, uh, she would later claim not marry her because she was black. However, it also seemed like a lot of other men would have killed their own families for the chance to marry her. So, you know, like, the, like there usually is, you know, there was, there was mixed reactions. Uh, she also felt, uh, would later say that she never felt afraid in France because of the color of her skin. Uh, and it seems that France had a fixation with African culture in the 1920s focusing on primitive jungle life, not on any kind of urban African life or any kind of African intellectualism. Uh, in her first you know, uh, uh, production, Josephine danced a, a manic version of the Charleston while accompanied by a jazz band. Now, the Charleston was one of those many dance crazes that swept America, and apparently no one could dance the Charleston like Josephine Baker. She received many a standing ovation for her Charleston dance rendition, renditions, but it was her second routine she did for this performance, Dance Sauvage, that blew the audience's minds. In this dance number, in the risque French kind of Cabernet style of the uh, a lot of the theater, theatrical presentation of the day, Josephine appeared practically nude. She performed an erotic dance, topless, with a male dancer named Joe Alex to close the show, and the crowd went wild. This dance was a huge sensation, the talk of the town, as they say, and it catapulted Josephine to almost immediate stardom in Europe. In this now infamous routine, Josephine wore strings of pearls, wrist cuffs, a skirt made out of 16 rubber bananas, and not much else. And not making up the banana part, by the way. Just just saying that because I know you guys know about some banana stuff I've talked about. I, I know that you know that I think it's the sexiest fruit, sweet, sweet sexy banana peels, but she really did wear this banana skirt. Uh, Josephine was no longer the goofball of the production. The dirty kid from grade school who wore the same outfit for a year and got made fun of all the time was now transforming from comedic relief to sex symbol. Now 19 years old, uh, still very thin. She'd gotten some womanly curves. She was beautiful. She was majestic. She was sexy, especially when she danced. Hail, Lucifina. Josephine descended from a palm tree on stage to start her dance sauvage routine. Then she began to dance, her hips starting to gyrate wildly. Almost like a sexier version of twerking. You can find a video on YouTube of her doing this dance. She's amazing. Has this perfect dancer's body, lithe and agile. Even an old grainy footage where everybody moves too fast because of a frame rate translation issue. She's still uh, elegant, much more than sexy or beautiful. She's magnetic. She exuded star power. You can see and feel how her smile would control a room. Such an interesting intangible, by the way, star power. Some people have it. Some people don't. Uh, Josephine reminds me of former suck subject Marilyn Monroe in this respect. They both just had it. 
this this intangible. Joseph, Josephine had more it than Marilyn, I think, did it even. Uh, and Paris went wild for the poor girl from St. Louis, as did Europe. Josephine's success also coincided with the Exposition des Arts Décoratifs, some other uh, world's fair that Paris had, uh, one that gave birth to the term Art Deco. And this world fair brought about a renewal of Parisian interest in non-Western forms of art, especially African art. Uh, Paris, when she arrived, was obsessed with everything African, and Baker was, in the city's collective opinion, the, the best thing Africa had to offer, the most uh, exciting, sexiest export, even though she was, you know, not even from Africa. But uh, Paris is the dance, she would later say, and I am the dancer. Yeah, she was like the mascot, this hero of Paris. All over the city, she went to parties, dressed in the height of the latest Parisian fashions now. She was adored at these parties, shown an instinctive, natural affinity for the famous and powerful, feeling at home amongst celebrities. The kings and queens of her childhood imagined no longer seemed quite so remote. She was with the creme de la creme of society, the upper crust, and they adored her. She would never bathe in anyone else's bathwater ever again. As the Negro Review enjoyed increasing success, Josephine was lavished with gifts from fans, including fancy ball gowns and jewelry. She lived in a two-bedroom suite in the Hotel Fournette, this beautiful hotel. She began to live like the queen she dreamed about as a child. She bought herself a collection of dolls, something she'd wanted since she was a kid, named each one. Shortly after moving uh, into her suite, she also indulged her love of animals by going nuts. She, she started buying parakeets, parrots, a couple rabbits, a snake, a baby pig. She named the pig Albert after her hotel's doorman. Bewitched by Josephine, he was delighted, not only uh, you know, by the pig, but uh, by all of her other creatures assembling this little zoo in her hotel room. Josephine was not only performing in La Revue Negra, uh, she and the band from the show were also hired to appear late each evening after the show in one of these clubs we've talked about. Uh, this one was the famous Moulin Rouge, right? Making even more money, working in one of the most famous Cabernet music halls in the world, a place I'd heard about before the suck and I didn't know shit about this world. So he's legit super famous in Paris. The run of La Revue Negra was extended twice. Eventually, the pressure of other upcoming bookings forced it to close after seven weeks. And then it just went on to play in other theaters around the city for the rest of the year. By the end of the year, it felt like everyone in Paris had seen this show at least once. The whole cast would have been happy to stay in Paris forever, but producer Caroline Dudley wanted to capitalize on its success by taking it out on tour. She booked them uh, to appear for six weeks as the last act on the bill at the Cirque Royale in Brussels. After that, they played six weeks at the Nelson Theater in Berlin, followed by another six weeks in Moscow. After Paris, Brussels was relatively uneventful. Uh, but again, the show was a massive hit. And again, Josephine was singled out by, you know, uh, the critics in public for acclaim. One show in Brussels was even attended by the King uh, of Belgium, King Albert. And this was the first for Josephine, her first royal performance. She really was with royalty now. Then they went on to Berlin. And in, and in many ways, Josephine liked Berlin even more than Paris. The bright, brash nightlife of Berlin felt like more like America. Uh, than Paris did. More like the nightlife of the Chestnut Alley back in St. Louis. But at the same time, very different. Uh, La Revue Negra was was a, almost as great a success in Berlin as it had been in Paris. Josephine was again a huge sensation. Her onstage near nakedness appealed to a growing German nudist movement, uh, which isn't something I made up. Uh, a lot of Germans were throwing off their clothes in their homes and health clubs in 1925, believing that the air on their body was more natural and health-giving, that a freer life would help release pressure uh, and, and re relieve people, you know, uh, from the neuroses arising from the pressures of modern society. And why does that sound so very German for some reason? Uh, in the Berlin nightclub world, Josephine would later recall, when I walked in, the musicians would stop playing. They stood up and saluted me. I mean, how cool is that to get that reaction in a country she's just shown up in? She was invited to all the smart cafes and clubs and dance, dances and parties in Berlin. She had a blast. 
May have also uh, indulged quite a bit in Berlin's free and open, sexually liberated nightlife environment, hooking up with a variety of German clean wings. Get it, Josephine, live it. Strange to think that this same sexually liberated and racially tolerant city would soon succumb to the rise of Nazism. Right? They'd go from adoring a black woman to being furious that a black man named Jesse Owens was allowed to run in the 1936 Olympics in just a decade. March of 1926, Josephine, still not even 20 years old, returns to Paris. She'd been cast to perform in arguably the most famous performance space in the world at that time, the uh, Folie Bergère Music Hall, in a set called La Folie du Jour. Originally built as an opera house, this cultural institution is still in business, still a strong symbol of French and Parisian life. Baker again dances topless, again wearing a skirt made out of bananas. The show is wildly successful with some performance tweaks. It's even more successful than her last Parisian run. Baker becomes one of the most popular, highest paid performers in Europe. It's a huge production. Over half a million dollars went into set design and costumes. Authors such as Ernest Hemingway, E.E. Cummings become huge fans. Baker is nicknamed the Black Venus, the Black Pearl, the Bronze Venus. By mid-1926, Josephine Baker became the most famous woman in Paris by far, black or of any other color. She may have been the most famous person in France or in Europe, period. Photographs of her were selling everywhere. She was believed at the time to be the most photographed woman in the entire world. Dolls of her dressed in her banana skirt, bought by the thousands. God knows what I would have done to one of those. Uh, cocktails and bathing suits, hairdressing products were named after her. Her glowing coffee-colored skin mesmerized Parisians who now wanted to look like her. She was paid by the company making Valet's Water Lily Beauty Cream to let them feature her in their advertising. A shop window in, in, in a local Parisian store uh, had a giant moving doll of her alongside a sign that said, you can have a body like Josephine Baker if you use Valet's Cream. To many young French women, she became a symbol of liberation, liberated, you know, uh, uh, you know women's rights. She was a symbol of sexual liberation for women. Paris's Im uh, impressive arti artist community also was in love with her. Uh, she posed for Picasso numerous times and many other famous artists, 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 uh, saying years later uh, that Picasso did not see the outside, but saw inside. He was very intense and very strong. He pulled you to him. And then like indulged celebrities do, she started to get a little weird from time to time. Uh, maybe not great for one's mental health to be getting uh, so famous so fast. She starts showing up late for her own shows, starts getting a little casual at the performances here and there. There's a story about her eating lobster in her dressing room when it was time to go on stage. And when the stage manager pounded on her door, uh, she was annoyed that, that he inter interrupted her meal and uh, you know he demanded that she go out and do her show. So she just took her lobster on stage and ate it in front of the crowd, who apparently thought it was just an odd part of the performance and somehow loved it. So, which, you know, makes her act even weirder. She's getting uh, lots of uh, uh, extra animals, so many. Starts bringing them to the theater now. Uh, they would find rabbits nested in the wardrobes, white mice in the drawers, cats, dogs, and birds fucking everywhere. Baby tiger and a boa constrictor were some of the more exotic animals she brought to her, uh, her job. She brought a young goat and a pig into the theater. Uh, she said she, later she'd find animals more trustworthy than people and would have a variety of pets for the rest of her life. And I hope I make it that big for just a little while. Like, how fun would it be to be allowed to get that weird? I just want to be big enough. I don't, you know, I don't need to bring a tiger. I just want to be big enough to have my doodles, Penny Pooper and Ginger Bell, be slowly lowered down to the stage during a stand-up show. I want them wearing little capes and crowns, sitting on little thrones. Uh, maybe it even happens a long time from now, and they're not even alive. Maybe they're stuffed. Maybe that makes it even weirder. But I still, but I pet them and talk to them as if they still are alive throughout the show. That's when I know I've made it. When I get to do that kind of shit and still sell tickets. Uh, Josephine cut her first music record in 1926. I actually listened to a ton of Josephine Baker. Uh, music while you know, doing the research for this 
But this podcast, you know, it's good. It's way different than what I usually listen to. She'd sing songs in both French and English. Uh, I, I think her most familiar song, at least to me, is Blue Skies. Uh, this is one from when she was, uh, you know, young, just kind of getting going. Her voice is not as confident and strong as it would get later, but I, I still like it. Let's, let's listen to this. Uh, this is a little bit of Josephine Baker, Blue Skies. You can kind of quietly air banjo in the background to make it sound even nicer. You know, just not, 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 nothing too much, just a little, just a ding, 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 uh, but, but also in 1926, Josephine met, but I, I really liked it. I listened to her, yeah, a ton this last couple of days. And there was just something about, I mean, her voice doesn't have a great range. It, it never got like super powerful, but there's just, I don't know. Again, it's that it factor. There's just something to it. It's like, yeah, I, I like that. I like listening to that. Uh, it doesn't help that she's, or it doesn't hurt. I mean, uh, that she is uh, re- preposterously attractive as well. That, that also never hurts. Also 1926, Josephine met a strange little man named Giuseppe Abatino. A man who claimed to be from Rome, but was really from Palmero, a man who by trade was either a stonemason or possibly a bricklayer, uh, but claimed to be royalty, claiming he was Count Papito de Abatino. He was a character. He was a 37-year-old dance instructor, part-time gigolo, described as being of average height, with swept back dark hair, small mustache, and a dark and dark deep-set eyes. Same pictures of him, and he just he's got a he's got an interesting look about him. Uh, elegantly dressed, he sported a, mo- a monocle, cigarette holder, carried a walking cane. He was handsome and suave, fucking weird and crazy, and Josephine fell in love with him. He would quickly become her manager, also at times assistant, also her husband, who she would never legally marry because technically she was still married to Willie Baker. Oh, oh, Willie number two from back in Philly. Oh, Philly Willie. Uh, Josephine and Pepita would have an odd relationship. Some saw him as a parasite, uh, clinging onto Josephine, using her for her money. Others saw him as a saint, always standing by Josephine when she'd have sexual affairs with a variety of other men that she did not try to hide from him and that he was not into. But they either had some kind of arrangement or he just fucking put up with it. In 1927, Baker starred in her first silent film called Siren Siren of the Tropics. So did Pepito. This is why some people thought he was a little bit of a parasite. He gave himself three different paying jobs in this project. He was a producer, helped with direction, and played a small role on screen, uh, even though no one cared at all if he was in this movie or not. Uh, the movie tells the story of a native girl named Papato, played by Baker, who falls in love with a French man named André Berval. And to be honest, for me, it doesn't hold up. Uh, I couldn't keep paying attention to it for more than a few minutes at a time. But to be fair, I'm not someone who enjoys old silent movies from the 20s in general. I just, I don't think I've ever liked a single one I've watched. You know, compared to now, they just, in my opinion, made super shitty movies. And I think, of course, they did. I don't buy it when people get really into, like, that era of film. Like, no, that's fucking, that's terrible. They were just getting started. They didn't know what they were doing. 
I'm getting off track again. Uh, despite not being a fan of wooden caption dialogue like, Papa also spoil you, the rent money. And if you do not believe me, you ask Bambula. It, it felt like they took the, the writers fucking 10 minutes to write this entire movie. Uh, I will say Josephine is super graceful in it. Her body control is amazing. She makes dancing and complicated movements look as easy just walking or breathing. And she looks somehow, this is interesting about her to me, somehow very modern to like an eerie degree. Like, like I feel like if it was in a horror movie, she would like, like start like talking directly to me. Like she looks like she has to be still alive somewhere. Does that, does that even make sense? Like sometimes I see old footage and I think, yeah, that looks like someone who lived a long time ago. That looks like someone who lived in a time before modern dental care and fine lotions. Someone who never got a chance to use sunscreen. Someone who never heard of a push-up or a multivitamin. But some people I see and I think, you know, or I'm sorry, yeah, some, those people I, I see and I think, yeah, old-timey person for sure, been dead a long time. But then other people, I'm like, fuck, what? How is this footage from 100 years ago? Like, you look like you could be across the street right now. With Josephine, I think she looks like she could pop out of the screen and not only blend in today's modern society, but dominate it again, become a star again. Like, she would crush Instagram. Ah, and even though I didn't love it, Siren of the Tropics did get positive reviews from critics and the public alike. People in Sweden liked it so much that a doll was made of her and her likeness sold in Stockholm shops. Just, oof, da, oof, da, that's a nice doll. Rubbing in the tug in the doll. Oof, da, oof, look at the doll. Put it on your parts. Uh, American movie producers in Hollywood also wanted Josephine to perform in their films, and she turned them down, uh, which speaks to her star power. She was so successful in Europe. And she loved living in France so much. She was like, eh, I don't fucking need Hollywood. 1928, Josephine and Pepito set on a world tour of sorts, 24 cities in Europe and South America, back when you couldn't just buy direct flights or any kind of flights, back before motion sickness pills. No, thank you. Uh, this is when Josephine would encounter some hardcore racism again uh, for the first time since she'd left America. The Nazi movement is getting stronger. It's growing along with other racially intoler intolerant groups in Eastern Europe. Uh, also, the Catholics uh, protest her performances fiercely in some place like Vienna on the grounds of moral indecency. Uh, in Vienna, the Catholic Church actually held extra emergency masses directly prior to her performances, as if her dancing around topless was going to rip open a portal to hell. Just, I am here, it is I, Satan. The dark titties have stirred me from my eternal slumber. Gyrating African hips, mimicking the very natural and life-affirming act of procreation, have pushed God himself to give me permission to bring forth an army of demons to punish you for allowing those dark titties to flop about in front of previously pure white men. Seriously, what the fuck is wrong with so many people? Like the ridiculous shit that people get worked up about makes me so angry, just consistently. The Austrian parliament even voted as to whether or not she'd be legally allowed to perform in their country. You know, and she was barely allowed by the government. Again, those dark titties, what immoral decadence might they unleash amongst the white folk? They'll watch one dance and just abandon their white families and start fucking each other in the street. Uh, when Josephine returned to Berlin, where she'd previously been, you know, warmly embraced, Nazism had gotten a much stronger foothold. Nazi hecklers start showing up at her performances, literally just yelling racial slurs at her in the middle of her fucking show. Disrupting the performance until Josephine couldn't stand it, had to cancel her remaining performances. Munich outright bans her from performing altogether, right? Can't risk getting those superior Aryan dicks hard. Might make those white men question their silly racist beliefs if they get boners over those dark titties. 
Uh, luckily, elsewhere in Europe, she's received warmly. In Romania, in an outdoor theater, Josephine dances her banana dance in a rainstorm, tossing away her umbrella as part as, as her makeup runs down her face, you know, getting poured on the, the, the costume disintegrates and the crowd goes wild. Scandinavian audiences also loved her, uh, even though one Danish pastor had campaigned against her morality. He attended a performance and became so thoroughly converted that he stood up and cheered. Uh, the Swedish royal family, excuse me, attended her performances, including the crown prince Gustav, to whom she's rumored to have had a little romantic fling with. The girl who dreamed of royalty, May have had some royalty in her bedroom, which uh, had to have been kind of mind-blowing. In Amsterdam, she uh, did the Charleston and Dutch wooden clogs to the delight of the crowd. Uh, Josephine found controversy again in South America. In Argentina, the Catholic parties protested her as immoral. The nation's president agreed, but then an anti-government party adopted her as a symbol of their ongoing political battles, supported her. At one performance, both factions protested, got into a little fight, and started throwing firecrackers at one another, which is is a weird way to be angry at one another. Like, it didn't evolve into a real brawl. They just, uh, you know, just showed up and threw firecrackers. Whatever, like, like M80s and shit, I guess. Grown men acting like weird 10-year-olds. Uh, Josephine returns to Paris. She's offered another starring role, this time in, in another theater called uh, Casino de Paris. And this show, she would sing. She would uh, sing in shows for the rest of her career. The songwriter, Vincent Scotto, would, would hire, uh, was hired to write a romantic ballad just for her that would compliment her voice and, you know, her modest range. He wrote some French shit that translates to, I have two loves, referring to her love for both Paris and America, and it almost immediately sold 300,000 copies. Shortly after this, Paul Varna, one of the owners of the Casino de Paris, uh, gifted Josephine with a tame cheetah, knowing that she likes animals. Now she has a, a cheetah she names Chiquita. She's living in a fucking zoo. She puts a collar on the cheetah. Uh, the collar is adorned with expensive square diamonds. <laughs> so over the top. And she just walks her cheetah around Paris. And sometimes it would get loose. Luckily, it didn't maim or kill anybody. On several different occasions, she brought it to theaters and it got away from her. And I guess one time jumped into the orchestra pit and just fucking terrorized the, terrorized the musicians. <laughs> uh, also, this thing slept in her bed, slept in the bed with Josephine and Pepito. And I guess Pepito wasn't a big fan. I bet not, man. Penny and Ginger sleep in bed with Lindsay and I. And I'm fine with that. But I would not be fine with a cheetah that might slice up our faces in the middle of the night. Um... And where was this cheetah saying? They weren't in the little hotel room anymore. Uh, Josephine and Pepito bought a 30-room mansion in an upscale suburb on the western bank of the Seine River. It was named the Beautiful Oak because of the gorgeous oak trees that lined the long driveway. It looked almost like a fairy tale castle complete with pointed turrets, dormer windows, medieval shields. I mean, she is living like a royal life now. Each room in this place had its own theme from a Louis, uh, the 14th bedroom, uh, to an Indian room with temple bells. In a room next to the master bedroom, she installed cages for her monkeys. (laughs) In another room, uh, she had an aviary for her parrots, parakeets, cockatiels, cockatoos, roaming the grounds for ducks, chickens, geese, pheasants, turkeys, all sorts of flower gardens on the estate to the point that she hired uh, three full-time gardeners to keep it all looking pretty. She also started a little vegetable garden herself she worked on. It was a long-time dream of hers. I wonder how often she sat down and reflected how ridiculously far she'd come from her childhood, from rats to a French estate. And doing all of this well before the age of 30, I might add. Uh, in 1931, 1932, Josephine toured Europe extensively again, uh, returned again to the Casino de Paris or de Paris for another long run of shows. In 1933, she went on a world tour that briefly included parts of Asia and Africa. In 1934, Josephine started another film, one called Zuzu, that was written specifically for her, uh, to the extent that the main character was even named Josephine. Uh, that one was apparently really bad. Uh, no one liked it, but they still loved her. 
1935, took another crack at the movies and did another uh, film entitled Princess Tam Tam. It was also pretty bad, and then she gave up on films. Camera acting required subtler expressions and movements, and her instinct was always to go real big, because that's what worked on the, on the live stage. 1935, Pepito booked Josephine with the Siegfried Follies in a show that was to include Fanny Bryce and Bob Hope, the early uh, famous American entertainer, with musical numbers by Ira Gershwin. Josephine Baker would be the first black woman to appear in the Siegfried Follies, and it turns out she'd also be the last. Uh, she and Pepito sailed to New York, where she was reminded that despite being a huge star in Europe and South America, she was still a second-class citizen in the States. She and Pepito took a cab to their hotel, the St. Moritz, or Moritz, only to have the manager check them in and then scold them and tell them that Josephine would never be allowed to walk through the lobby again. When an old lover of hers from Paris came to New York, Josephine spent several nights with him in a rented apartment in Harlem and Pepito, you know, didn't love it. He began increasingly frustrated and upset over her affairs. It was affecting his physical health and he returns to Paris. And then a few months later, Josephine receives news that Pepito really did get sick and he died of cancer. He spent his last weeks tidying up her financial affairs. So maybe he wasn't a parasite. Maybe he wasn't just trying to take her money. Maybe he really, really cared for her. Uh, it seems that he did. Josephine fell into a deep depression for months after his death. Uh, she arrived back in Paris on June 2nd, 1936, a day before her 30th birthday. He wanted to celebrate the big 3-0 in Paris. Uh, she was lonely after Pepito's death. They never married, you know, legally because I said, you know, she was uh, still legally married to Philly Willie, Philly Willie Baker all those years. But when she was in the U.S., she did obtain a legal divorce from him. She suddenly longed to get married and have kids. But despite the fact that the French were less racist than Americans, more than willing to, uh, to carry on affairs with her, most Frenchmen were not interested in marrying her, often due to family opinion on the matter of marrying a black woman. So, you know, sad that she's still in her beloved France encountered a fair amount of racism. Finally, Josephine met a good-looking and athletic 27-year-old Jewish man named Jean Lyon. Or Lyon, maybe it's spelled Lyon. Pretty badass name. Uh, John Lyon, uh, he met him at the stables where she rode her horse, Tomato. Of course, she also had a horse. It doesn't seem like there was any animal she didn't have. John Lyon uh, was a pilot. He taught Josephine to fly. She would actually obtain her pilot's license. And then Jean proposed to Josephine on her 31st birthday. And they were married later in 1937. At her wedding, Josephine wore a top hat and a full-length sable fur and addressed the crowd saying, haven't we all got a heart? Haven't we all got the same ideas about happiness? Isn't the same for everyone? Or isn't it the same for every woman in love? At the end of the ceremony, sportsmen fired their rifles and firemen tooted their trombones. Uh, with this marriage, Josephine finally became a legal citizen of France after being beloved there for so many years. She told the Gather Press she was happy, but the marriage didn't go much better than the first two. Their schedules were completely opposite and they didn't see uh, eye to eye on how marriage life was going to work. Although, you know, Jean had been attracted by Josephine's flamboyant performer persona, he thought once they were married, she would settle down and be a typical French wife, attending to his clothes, meals, business thank you notes, the kids. And although Josephine had longed to be a wife and have a normal family life, she soon realized she could not leave the stage. Uh, she also had a miscarriage, which put more strain on the marriage. When she found out Jean was having an affair, Josephine retaliated by having one of her own. And then by 1939, their marriage was foundering and then they were divorced by 1940. Uh, in early September, 1939, France formally declared war after Germany invaded Poland. Fucking Poland, messing things up for France. Typical, you know, how they would. Uh, Josephine was recruited into La De Hume Baru, uh, uh, Bureau, maybe, I don't know. The French Military Intelligence Organization. I, I know it's the, the French Military Intelligence Organization. I don't like one of the words. Uh, they needed someone who could travel around and collect and disperse information without attracting attention. And Josephine made uh, the perfect choice because of her touring. 
When Josephine was asked by the head of military intelligence, Jacques Abte, to engage in this work, she said, France made me what I am. I will be grateful forever. The people of Paris had given me every, have given me everything. They have given me their hearts. I have given them mine. I am ready, Captain, to give them my life. You may use me as you wish. She's a fucking spy now. How cool is that? And her words made clear that not only was she motivated by her hatred of racism, but by her love of the Parisians in France. Josephine was was told to use her social contacts to attend as many embassy parties as possible. Just appear carefree and frivolous, but keep an ear to the ground about German troop locations and Italy's plans for entering the war. Every day, Josephine reported for work at the Red Cross Center in a rundown section of Paris to help prepare for refugees fleeing from the Nazis. Military intelligence also told her to look for possible German spies amongst the homeless refugees. Uh, Once a week, Josephine flew a plane with Red Cross supplies to Belgium with the Red Cross. She also performed for the troops on the front lines. During the Christmas season of 1939, she sent 1,500 presents with a signed photo of herself to French soldiers on the front lines. And I'm guessing if anyone had been measuring this specifically, they would have seen a giant spike in French frontline masturbation late that Christmas night. Like, you know I'm right. If you're a dude or you know dudes, you know, you know that I'm right. As the Nazis invaded Holland and other countries to the north of France in May 1940, increasing numbers of wounded flooded into Paris. Josephine helped tend to them through her Red Cross work, also saying to them in the wards, comforting them, entertaining them. In June 1940, German soldiers marched towards Paris, and though Germans did not exterminate blacks as they did Jews, they did consider them inferior and had a forced sterilization policy in the Rhineland. Moreover, Josephine was married to a Jew and a public outspoken critic of Nazism. So as Parisians fled the city, Josephine did not want to go, but she was convinced that she would be of more use to the cause if she relocated to the south of France. Josephine went to uh, uh, live in a southern French chateau she'd rented before the Germans officially occupied Paris on June 14, 1940. Soon, the, the Germans were moving now to occupy the south of France, and Josephine went to the neutral nation of Portugal, where she was struck with pneumonia. As she mostly recovered, she was warned of the impending German occupation and instructed to head to one of the French colonies in northern Africa. So Josephine sent a friend to travel north to her home near Paris to collect some of her animals, not going to let them be left behind, including three monkeys, two white mice, two white mice. That is, that's pretty sweet. Uh, if you love mice, you're going to hate me saying this, but I, I don't think I give a fuck about the mice. I'd be like, yeah, get the uh, monkeys and the, uh, and the, and the dogs. What about the mice? Probably just you know, let them go. They'll probably be okay. Um, and she got, she's like a patron saint of animals. Uh, Bojangles just told me uh, she's his favorite subject that we've sucked so far. Uh, she also managed to get passports for a Jewish film producer and several other refugees to help them get out and fly out of France safely. And she goes to Algiers. From Algiers, Josephine relocates to Casablanca in Morocco. Josephine soon takes another trip to Portugal, again, pretending to be on tour. This time, she's carrying information to transmit on the margins of her sheet music. She would later say the destiny of our allies and consequently, consequently the free French was written in part over the pages of some of my music. When she returned to Morocco, she and some friends moved to the seaport town of Marrakesh, I really want to, Lindsay, I really want to go there. Uh, About that time, Josephine becomes pregnant again uh, from who no one knows and then suffers another miscarriage. And sadly, this one results in an emergency hysterectomy. She subsequently develops an infection that quickly becomes uh, peritonitis and then septicemia. Antibiotics, not routinely available until the late 1940s. Septicemia, usually fatal. Luckily, she does survive because she was a badass mother sucker. For the next two and a half years, she rode in Jeeps Uh, over the deserts of North Africa, entertaining allied troops under very rough conditions. She sang in hospitals, bringing happiness and comfort to wounded soldiers. 
She began to tour and donate all the money she made to France's Nazi resistance efforts. And by the autumn of 1944, she had raised 3,143,000 francs for the war effort. As a reward, she was given the honorary rank of the French Air Force Les Filets de l'Air, issued a uniform. On August 25th, 1944, Paris was liberated. And then Joseph, uh, Joseph, Josephine returned to Paris wearing that uniform. Of all the thousands of high fashion clothes and costumes she, she had worn and bought and been given, Josephine said it was this Air Force uniform that she was by far the most proud of. Uh, when Josephine returned to Paris, she was regarded as a heroine. Uh, other performance uh, or other performers have been accused of ties with the Germans during the Nazi occupied France. Uh, in fact, one, uh, a famous one, Maurice Chevalier, uh, was briefly arrested and interrogated, but Josephine uh, resumed performing in Paris immediately. No one suspected her of having any ties. And uh, she started performing in France. Uh, you know, as soon as German troops would leave each area, she would go do shows. When the Germans surrendered, Josephine went to Germany to sing for the inmates of the newly liberated Buchenwald uh, who were too sick to be moved, many of whom were dying. It was an experience so sad and tragic she would never talk about it. Uh, in 1946, Josephine fell in love again, this time with the band leader of the band who had accompanied her on a lot of these military shows, Joe Bouillon. They were married on June 3rd, 1947, on her 41st birthday in a civil ceremony and then a Catholic one. Josephine had been raised Baptist, was sought to have converted to Judaism during her marriage to Jean Leon, or Jean Lyon, excuse me, but she had never been a Catholic. However, as Bouillon later wrote, for Josephine, God was in everything. I have seen her enter a cathedral, a synagogue, a mosque, a temple, and show the same respect. For her, it wasn't one religion or another, but simply the idea of God that was everywhere. I like that. Josephine appeared to have had the same open-minded and accepting view of religion as she did of race. In December 1947, Josephine and Joe traveled to America, where she appeared in a show called Paris Sings Again. The American critics pan her, stating her costumes had more talent than she did in her performances. Man, fucking America, tough nut to crack for Josephine Baker. Josephine encountered perva pervasive racism again in America. Uh, New York City, she and Joe had to go to 36 hotels before they found one that would allow a mixed-race couple to stay under their roof. Segregation still rampant. Josephine fought against every chance she got. As one of her tour producers later said, she used the drinking fountains, the lunch counters, and the ladies' room. They threw her ass out, and she would walk right back in. Hail Nimra! Yeah, yeah, yeah! Hail Josephine! Uh, Josephine convinced her mother and sister to return to France on this trip by promising them they would experience a freedom they had never known in America. Before she left, Josephine spoke at Fisk University, an all-black college in Nashville, Nashville, about the equality of the races in France. She went back to France with a renewed determination to fight racism in the U.S. In 1951, the management of Copa City, a nightclub in Miami, tried to book Josephine while she was touring in Cuba. She told them she would only perform if blacks were allowed to attend. They, they refused and then upped their offer to $10,000 a week. And she told them that they could suck her fucking dick. Choke on it, you white devil fucks. No, she didn't say that. Uh, but she held her ground with class and dignity and refused to perform at a club that enforced segregation, and she won. Eventually, the club agreed to her terms and black celebrities were flown in for the opening gala night. Josephine said on stage, this is the happiest moment of my life. I have waited 27 years for this night. Here I am in this city where I can perform for my people, where I can shake your hands. This is a very significant occasion for us, and by us, I mean the entire human race beautiful. Uh, Josephine was a smashing success this time in America with rave reviews and the 750 seat club sold out every night. 
Warner Brothers hired her to perform in major cities throughout the U.S., a live act between cinema shows. Critics raved about her. Josephine accepted bookings in clubs across the U.S., and she used her tour to fight for civil rights, refusing to perform anywhere that did not uh, admit blacks in the audience or racially discriminated in any way in their ticket sales. And ironically, she, she pulled this off in every city that she went to except St. Louis. Her hometown wouldn't fucking back down. They would not allow uh, any blacks into her audience, you know, if she was going to perform there. Man, those fucking bigots couldn't make a deal with the girl who was born and raised in their city. Uh, in Los Angeles in July 1951, while making her last appearance on this U.S. tour, Josephine was eating at the Biltmore Hotel in, in, in her French Air Force uniform she was so proud of when she heard a man next to her say some really not nice, super racist, horrible stuff. So I'm sure you can imagine the gist of it. And Josephine did not let it slide. She went to a phone booth, called the police to have him arrested under civil rights statutes. They informed her they could not arrest her because an officer had not overheard the remark, but they would send an officer over and she could make a citizen's arrest if she chose. And that's exactly what she did. The man, a salesman from Texas, was sentenced by a judge to 10 days in jail or pay a $100 fine for disturbing the peace. Hail Nimrod. Praise Triple M. Yeah, sure. That's St. Louis too. wants to share in some of this joy. Months later, while on tour in Argentina, Josephine makes some pretty scathing remarks about the United States to newspapers there, stating that it was a barbarous land uh, with a Nazi-style democracy in which blacks had no rights, and I can't blame her based on her experiences. In reaction, though, the U.S. Immigration Service issues a policy statement that if she ever wishes to be admitted into the U.S. again, she would have to prove, quote, her right and worth, and that is when she said, you can suck my fucking dick. Uh, No, no, she still didn't say that. I wish she would have, though. Uh, she said to be barred from the U.S. is an honor. And then that quote was published in newspapers around the world, which didn't make, you know, people in the U.S. real happy. Uh, disillusioned with America, Josephine found comfort again in France, returning to her chateau in the south of France, which she now develops into a tourist attraction, complete with a J-shaped pool. Huh, Josephine? Okay, I get it. Hotel, restaurant. Uh, the chateau includes a wax museum depicting events in her life from her childhood in St. Louis to her banana skirt dance. Josephine increasingly wanted to turn her chateau into a private world where all races will be treated as equal. She also started adopting children. This is something she's really famous for. She wanted to create a rainbow tribe by adopting four children from each of the races with different religions, proving that all humans could live in harmony together. And her husband, Joe, was agreeable to this plan. During an Asian tour in Japan in 1954, uh, Josephine adopts two boys, one Korean who came from a Buddhist family, one half Japanese, half American, whose roots were in Shintoism. Performing in Scandinavia, uh, she adopts uh, a white two-year-old uh, child in an orphanage in Helsinki. Uh, Helsinki. Yeah, Helsinki. Jesus, Jesus. Dun, da, dun, da, dun, dun, have to speak Helsinki. There I can say it if I speak like this. Um, this kid had been born to Protestants. While touring in Bogota, Josephine adopted a black child from a Catholic family. She and Joe had agreed to adopt, uh, you know, uh, one more child, an American Indian child. At this time, I think Joe was getting a little bit like, ha, all right, let's maybe, let's maybe slow down a little bit. Uh, then Josephine brought home a white Parisian orphan. Joe was upset, but Josephine managed to convince him to also adopt a Jewish child, arguing that the Jewish people had suffered much racial discrimination. In 1956, while on tour in North Africa, she brought home two different Algerian children, the sole survivors of an air raid on their village. She raised one of them as Muslim, adding yet another religion to those uh, among her adopted children. Uh, again, Joe was upset, trying to explain to her that ah, they were spending too much money. She was spending the fastest she's making it. You know, these kids that they already had were enough to raise. But she wasn't done. She adopted an American Indian child in Venezuela in 1959. 1961, Josephine was inducted to the French Legion of Honor. She was made a knight by Charles de Gaulle. 
The Legion of Honor had been established by Napoleon, and membership in it was one of the highest honors one could attain in French society. Uh, in 1961, she was also starting to have uh, some real money problems. To support their many, many children, Josephine had to perform more than she wanted. And the extra travel, in addition to money problems uh, and lots of kids, put a strain on her marriage. And they separated, and he relocated to Paris. They attempted a trial reconciliation, but it didn't work. And around Christmas 1959, newspapers ran stories of an infant found in a trash bin. Josephine rushed out, adopted another kid, naming him no Noel. And this time, Joe was done. He didn't abandon all the kids. He'd later re relocate to Buenos Aires and four of the kids would live with him there. And you know what? And I can't blame him for getting a little sick of that. I mean, Josephine's heart in the right place, but unless you're running an orphanage or a foster care house, you can't just keep bringing home kid after kid. Like, like if Lindsay started bringing random kids home, I would eventually, I don't know, I might kill her. I might kill her. Unless they were very good at doing podcast research and like keeping the lawn mowed. Then, you know, I'd put them in charge of my kids. Uh, 1962, Josephine, uh, adopted her final child, a French Moroccan girl. She ended up with a dozen, 10 boys, two girls, a lot of kids, uh, without Joe to help her kind of, you know, run the money, uh, manage it. Josephine's financial troubles got worse between 1953 and 1963. It was estimated she'd, uh, lost seven and a half million francs and she was 2 million francs in debt. She started selling off her jewels. I mean, this place is Chateau. I've seen pictures of it. I mean, it was opulent, hard, a lot of money to keep this place up. A lot of people had to work there. Starts selling off jewels to try and save it. Uh, then she's threatened by her creditors in 1963 with its forced sale. Around this time, the NAACP invites her back to America to participate in a demonstration. She also has the opportunity to play at Carnegie Hall with the proceeds split between the NAACP and her attempt to save her chateau. And how generous is she, by the way? Still giving half her performance money to charity, even though she's losing her house. Uh, initially, Josephine has trouble getting back in the U.S. because of those comments she'd made earlier. But Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general, Bobby Kennedy uh, personally seized her visa. On August 28th, 1963, Josephine participates in the March on Washington, the largest civil rights demonstration in America, the one we talked about in the Martin Luther King suck. She sat on the stage in her Air Force uniform among the top civil rights leaders and celebrities of the day, including Martin Luther King, his wife Coretta, Bob Dylan. When it was her time to speak, she said, you are on the eve of complete victory. You can't go wrong. The whole world is behind you. Looking out at the black and white faces in the audience, she added salt and pepper, just what it should be. Uh, later, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Sounds familiar. I've heard of it. Uh, after the event, Josephine beams, until the March on Washington, I'd always had this little feeling in my stomach. I was always afraid. I couldn't meet white American people. I didn't want to be around them. But now that little gnawing feeling is gone. For the first time in my life, I feel free. I know that everything is right now. Meanwhile, the mayor of St. Louis responds with, Fucking whatever. Fucking dumb. <laughs> Fucking dumb. Fucking dumb. Josephine's performances at Carnegie Hall were a huge success, as were her other performances on our American tour in 1963. Uh, she then returns to France, immediately starts performing in Paris to try and raise money to keep that chateau. Creditors threatening to sell it. They, uh, the electric electricity, gas, and water are cut off in July of 64. That forces the closing of the hotel and restaurant, making things worse. And then in 1968, she loses it for good. When the new owners of the chateau were about to move in this part, so sad. Uh, Josephine barricades herself in the kitchen, tries to lock herself in. She's bawling. She doesn't want to leave. Eight men have to come in and physically haul her out. Like she, she fights them. They have, to, they have to pick up this devastated 60-year-old champion by her arms and legs, end up banging her head on the stove on the way out, literally have to toss her outside barefoot in a dressing gown and plastic shower cap. 
then she just sat there on the front steps, weeping until she collapsed and an ambulance was called to take her to the hospital. She had a total breakdown. She lost the chateau. Josephine and the children moved into a cramped two-room apartment in Paris, lent to her by a friend. And then she just cried a lot, you know, feeling sorry for herself and talking about how life wasn't fair and about how fucked up it was that, you know, she was practically back where she started and crammed into a little space with a bunch of family members. And she went to bed with a knife and she'd say if anyone, you know, touched her face with her feet, she'd fucking cut them. And she called dibs infinity on future baths. She always got to go first and uh, she never did anything else cool again. She just gave up. Now, of course, she didn't do that. She was a champion. She fell apart for two weeks. She allowed herself to collapse for two weeks and then she started doing shows again. She lined up tons of shows, continued to perform in countries all over the world to take care of those rainbow kids. 1974, Josephine returned to Carnegie Hall and fucking kicked ass. Right, performed and sang old songs, including Dylan's, The Times, They Are a Changing. She ended with My Way, shouting, I did it my way because I so profoundly believe in humanity. Josephine's performances were met with standing ovations and critical acclaim. She's for sure conquered America now. 1975, she returned to the Parisian stage to perform in a review entitled Josephine, a show about her life, a show celebrating the 50th anniversary of her Paris debut and included her childhood in St. Louis, showing her arrival in Paris for La Negra Review, the banana dance of the Follies, her war service, her life at the Chateau with the Rainbow Tribe. Josephine was on stage for the entire show to tell the story, even though younger dancers depicted her earlier years. And on the first night of her performance, many of her old celebrity friends were in the audience, including royalty, other noted performers like Mick Jagger from the Rolling Stones. There was a huge party after that first night for 250 celebrities in the audience at the Bristol Hotel. And Josephine was delirious with excitement and happiness. The next night after the performance, after dinner, she climbed to the top of a table and delightfully chanted, I'm 17, I'm 17. She tried to persuade the rest of her party to accompany her to some cabaret and, you know, uh, continue partying after the, they were done at this establishment. And when no one else would keep going with her, the 68-year-old woman told them, I'm the youngest of you all. And then the next day, her assistant, Anissa Papitos, couldn't wake her up when it was time to go to the theater. Josephine was taken by ambulance to a hospital and her assistant called her sister, Willie Mae, who was now living with her. Her sister came immediately, held her hand, calling her Tumpy. She had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage during her sleep and she would never again gain consciousness. Josephine Baker passed away in the early morning hours of April 12th, 1975. She went out in style. And on April 15th, thousands of Parisians lined the streets as the hearse carrying her body wound its way through the French city. Over 20,000 people crowded the streets outside the church, La Inglese Madeleine, where her services were held. Countless others watched her funeral on national French television as a decorated war hero, her casket was draped with the French flag. She was given a 21-gun salute. Even in death, Josephine had provided a final performance for her audience. And that takes us out of this epic, inspiring Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. I mean, what a life. The young black girl from St. Louis who slept in a cellar with a dog when she was an eight-year-old maid. The girl who'd witnessed those 1917 race riots firsthand. The girl who'd been divorced twice by the age of 15. The girl who wore high heel shoes with the heels broken off to school with the same outfit for a whole year to be mocked by her classmates. That girl, that girl grew up to live like a queen as the most famous woman in the fucking world. Definitely in France. She counted princes and princesses among her admirers. She became a war hero and a Civil War champion. Grade A plus top shelf meat sack. I hope you took some inspiration from this story. 
Think about how many times she could have quit along her journey. How many times could she have just said, fuck it, it's too hard. Just given up like her stepdad did or just ran away from responsibilities like her dad did. Think about how much she loved that chateau home for her rainbow children yet still gave to charities as she tries to raise money to keep it. Think about how brave she was to go and perform in countries where legislators called her indecent, where actual Nazis screamed at her as she was on stage. Think of the courage she showed, arresting that man in California, refusing to play that club in Florida until they let her perform in front of a black crowd. She was so many things. Mostly, she was just fucking amazing. And I'm glad I got to spend a lot of time with her this past week and with her story and her spirit. I hope you are too. Fight for your dreams. Fight for what you think is right, Mean Sacks, forever. Fight like she did until the fucking day you die. Why not? What's the alternative? Just to get old, slowly fade out, not doing shit? Who wants that? Where's the fun in that? Time now for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Josephine was the world's first internationally famous black female superstar. And also, I forgot to mention this, the first black woman to ever star in a motion picture. Number two, Josephine became a spy and successfully smuggled intelligence in and out of enemy territory for the French resistance against the Nazis in World War II. Number three, Josephine Baker rose from being one of the poorest kids in St. Louis when she was born in 1906 to being the most famous woman in France and a sex symbol internationally by 1925. Number four, Josephine would never give birth to a child of her own, but she would adopt 12 children from all over the globe, her rainbow tribe, to prove that we really can all get along. Also becoming one of the leading voices and one of the bravest voices in the American civil rights movement. How much did, oh, how much did she change because of her life? Number five, new info. Josephine was very likely bisexual. She's busting down all kinds of norms. According to her biography and son, Jean-Claude Baker, and several other biographers, it's likely that Josephine Baker had affairs with numerous women. Clara Smith, that successful blues singer who first took her under her wing. Uh, Mildred Smallwood, the first African-American woman to appear in American Dance Magazine. Bessie Buchanan, the first American, African-American woman to have a seat in New York State Legislator. Uh, those are just some of her uh, alleged lovers. And there were many others. And with all the prejudice she faced, she just chose to live the life she wanted to live over and over again. Hail, Lucifina. Hail, Josephine Baker. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Josephine Baker sucked. Is, uh, that's a hot sentence to say. Uh, what a lady, what a meat sack. Thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, my sexist lady. Sexiest lady in the world for me, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Bellacamp, Reverend Dr. Joe Horsecock Johnson Paisley, former horse jockey. <laughs> Thanks to the Bit Elixir app as I crew. The new app day, uh, update is here. I don't know why that makes me laugh so hard. Uh, it's so good. I hope you check out this new app. Uh, thanks also to Access Apparel, Script Keepers Act, uh, Flannery. And uh, let's talk about next week. What if you could go back in time, change something you said or did in your past? What if you could go back and kill baby Hitler or probably better, just, you know, raise him better. Give him a hot Jewish nanny. Uh, what if you could jump to the future and see how this whole humanity thing is going to work out? Well, you can't, not even close. But on the next episode of Time Suck, we are going to check out the vast topic of time travel to learn about what exactly is holding us back from running around space and time. And we'll look at both the science of time travel, the mythology and science fiction that jump-started the concept and drives the research of today. Well, also, this is going to be fun. Meet some of the wackiest wackadoodles in all of wackadoodle world as we profile several strange folks who have some time travel stories to tell. Also, does the U.S. government have secret time travel programs? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I bet there's some fun people who think so, though. We'll do our best to flesh out the truth from the mountains of space-time bullshit. We'll also meet some of the world's best thinkers and 
and digest their thoughts on the reality of time travel. The episode will touch on everything from physics and engineering to hoverboards and psychic powers. Nearly every culture has dabbled with the concept of traveling through time. How close are we to pulling this off? Tune in next week as we suck time itself here on Time Suck and time now for today's updates to previous messages or just, you know, some fine folks who have sent in some entertaining messages. And thank you all for taking the time to send these into the show. Time now for Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Okay, uh, first update is from new listener Bonnie L., who just got got. Bonnie writes, hey there, new listener here. Been listening to the podcast for only a few months as of writing this. Now, usually I'm pretty good at picking out the lies you love to sprinkle in all over the podcast. But in the JonBenet Ramsey suck, you made me damn near nauseous with your little Miss Hustler lie. <laughs> we got a lot of these emails. I was listening to the episode on JonBenet at work when you started describing this horrifying monstrosity of a fake child pageant. The whole time I just sat there working on Excel spreadsheets with this look of pure, unadulterated disgust on my face in an open office in front of my coworkers. I was just about ready to dry heave at my desk when you dropped the line, uh, www. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, <laughs> at that point, I just shook my head in shame, knowing full well that you got me. Seems like a dumb thing to fall for, but considering we live in a world where pageants sign their kids up, for, or, or parents sign their kids up for child beauty pageants, and even dance teams where dancers wear super skimpy outfits and perform borderline suggestive jazz dance moves, I wouldn't exactly put something like that LMH <laughs> Lomas Hustler hoedown out of the realm of possibilities. It's probably a good thing that everyone in the office was so focused on work and no one really noticed me working on Excel spreadsheets with a look of sheer horror and disgust on my face. I know you get a lot of messages like this where a listener falls for one of your obvious lies, but I wanted to share my story because I mentioned earlier, I don't usually fall for them, but here we are. Anywho, really love listening to the podcast. Keep on sucking, Bonnie L. Love it, Bonnie. I love getting, I'll never get tired of getting those messages. They make me so happy. Uh, and I'm glad you're enjoying the show. And I'm glad that's not real. Uh, great new vaccination perspective update from Mikey Jones, fine time sucker who writes, good morning, Dan. I recently listened to your podcast on the anti-vaccine movement. I have to start off by saying I am not an anti-vaccine proponent, but rather a vaccine reform proponent. There are a few things that went unmentioned in the podcast. One, the special court system for damages done by vaccines. Two, the heavy metals and vaccines that pass the blood brain barrier. Three, the potentially deadly side effects from vaccines, specifically the flu vaccine. Should I get the flu and recover in a week or get a vaccine that could possibly give me the flu anyway? Four, the ingredients such as fetal tissue and the recent banned toxic substances like mercury. I strongly believe people like myself who want vaccine reform are thrown into a category of being 100% completely anti-vaccine. That is nonsense. I don't believe vaccines cause autism because there is no science to support that. However, I do believe that giving so many vaccines at once to a child with a weak immune system uh, might not be safe. And there are medical professionals who agree with that. Vaccine reform is not anti-vaccine. Thank you, Mike. Yes, great points. Vaccine reform, not an anti-vaccine belief. And I, and I do think, yeah, yeah, the, of course, vaccine should be, should be reformed, as, as should be all medicine. You know, uh, you know, medicine should be continually reformed, you know, and just uh, designed to become safer and safer with less side effects. Uh, that should just be a goal for medicine in general. So, yeah, that's an important uh, yeah, group to bring up, vaccine reformers. Not against it. Just think that, yeah, maybe we can, you know, we should just you know, keep our eye on these things and keep tweaking it and make it better and safer. So thank you for sending that in. Uh, time sucker Jerry, uh, Jerry Lynn made me laugh so hard when I first read this next update. Jerry Lynn writes, damn you, Dan. I was just listening to the Ramsey suck and I was picking up my 13-year-old from school. Usually I mute it at the school. So I push play right after my son gets into the car. It's a sunny day up here in Alaska and the windows were down. 
I press play just at the part where you start talking about little girls (laughs) taking off their shirts. And my 13-year-old boy yells, what the actual fuck? My first response should have been to yell. However, my eyes went wide and I slowly turned him uh, towards him, slowly laughing way too hard. I guarantee people heard. I don't think I'm going to want to be seen in any PTA meetings in the near future. (laughs) Anyway, keep doing what you're doing. And again, get your ass up here to Alaska. Gerilyn Masker. Oh, thank you for sending that in. That does crack me up. I would love to get up to Alaska. Hopefully one of these days. Love to get up back to Anchorage. Uh, in Juno's, Juno, Anchorage, Fairbanks, all good. Hopefully I can do a little run in Alaska one of these days. Not opposed to it. Uh, Time Sucker, Aaron Fink, has our first special shout-out request for today. Uh, Aaron writes, Good afternoon, Suckmaster. I messaged you about a fellow sucker and friend of mine who actually introduced me to Time Sucker a few years ago. His name is Eric Wallace. He's from Catskill, New York. He passed away on the 16th. As a result of a head-on traffic collision, he was 29 years old, one of your biggest fans, fucking awesome guy all around, one of my best friends. I know he's made it to the great sack of Nimrod. I just wanted to know if you could give him a shout out. I know he would love that. Thanks, Dan, and everyone at Time Suck. Aaron, yes, Eric Wallace, thank you for being a Time Sucker, man. Uh, sorry you're, you're no longer with us and, and hope you are enjoying where you're out now or where you are at now. And uh, yes, yeah, sorry you were taken so suddenly and soon and so young, man. And, and we got a similar thing here uh, this, this last one. Finally, yeah, definitely some sad news. Space Lizard Brian Cox. Uh, let's talk about a fallen future lizard who, for whatever whatever reason, I, I think is going to hear this shout out, just like I'm hoping Eric Wallace is uh, hearing this or heard his little shout out. Uh, okay, so Brian writes, Dear Dan, I wanted to write a couple things first before this shit gets fucked up. First of all, I'm a big fan of your stand-up. Seeing you in Sacramento where I gave you a medal, ESWS, that I earned while serving in the Navy. Man, thank you. It, it is a big deal and a crazy time in my life, and so are you, which is why it seemed necessary that you should have it. And that's, I am honored. Uh, we also met at Rooster Teeth Feathers, and you were happy and was happy to see you again. I've been a long-time listener, and of course, I've been a space lizard ever since its inception. You have an amazing knack to touch me right into my soul space and have cheered me up over the years. I wasn't sure if I was going to reach out, as I'm plenty sure you get a ton of these kind of messages, along with an ass load of shit, uh, shit <laughs> you have to do yesterday. Well, yeah, we are busy. But I can't say I've ever done anything in my power to help my family unless I try. So here goes, the part that gets shitty. On September 7th, my 14-year-old nephew was collecting bait near a bridge in Jacksonville, Florida, when something was needed in the car parked across the street. So Joey, my nephew, was waiting on the shoulder, waiting for a car to pass when the car swerved and hit him. The women had been speeding and he had no time to react or get out of the way. He was knocked out. And as soon as his his stepdad saw what had happened, began CPR on him. It was at that point, both of his lungs had collapsed. He died on the scene before the ambulance could get to him. The driver was not breathalyzed or given any kind of drug test and was free to go. Of course, the media showed up and did a report broadcast that he ran out into the road like he was a moron and continued to cover the story around how speeding is a problem. The impact damage was on the front right corner of her car. I'm no expert, but it sounds like she was messed up on her phone, not paying attention or both. This has broken my family. Everyone is doing the best they can. I put his fundraiser on the Facebook page. Thank you. So yeah, and I'm grateful as hell that people have already donated. I was wondering if maybe you can give him a shout out. As I know, once I got him into the podcast, he would have been a space lizard. There is no doubt in my mind as he could often be heard saying, prove it when someone told him something. He was incredibly smart. An aptitude test told us that he was thinking at a sophomore in college level. Anyways, I know this is long and it's sad. We miss him dearly. His name was Joseph Lawrence Cox. May he rest in peace. Well, you know what? You would have been a great space lizard, Joseph Lawrence Cox. I hope you're happy. Still curious wherever you are. 
Because what fun would it be to have all the answers? I'm sorry you left this world so, so soon. I hope this next world treats you better. Uh, thank you for your service, Brian. You're a good uncle. I hope this all helps somehow. Uh, thank you all for all your messages and, and rest in peace to both Joseph Lawrence Cox and also uh, Eric Wallace. Quick moment of silence for them both. Thank you for your messages. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everybody. Be careful. Stay safe. If you have to use the same bathwater as everyone else in your family, uh, try not to be last. And keep on sucking. That's when you come on over, bring that hot apple cider, bring your peanut butter, showbiz, boom, boom.